Before I begin the podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, I'd like to take a moment to apologize for something that I said concerning concentration camps in my last podcast. It was wrong. It was insensitive. It was stupid. It was ridiculous. I'm better than what I said, and I sincerely apologize for those I offended. It was completely out of line. It was completely ridiculous. It was stupid. It was ignorant and all those other things. So with that being said, one more time, I sincerely apologize for what I said, and I hope that you enjoy the podcast. All right, let's go. Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss. I hope today everybody is doing well. I hope yesterday everybody is doing well. I hope the day before everybody is doing well. I hope going forward that we all remain responsible. We remain mature. We remain intelligent. I hope that we're using common sense and making good decisions and following what the doctors are telling us to do to try to slow down this pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID-19. So I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to get back to some sense of normalcy sooner rather than later today on the podcast. Let's get right into it. The NFL draft less than 10 days away. Damn. And you know, thinking about this, there's a possibility that this NFL draft, which is going to be conducted by Roger Goodell in his basement, jeez, this could possibly be the last quote-unquote normalized event in sports for the year. If you really think about it, there's a possibility. I'm hoping it doesn't happen. I'm a guy who loves sports. I'm a guy who's going a little bit crazy without sports. I'm, going, I'm a guy who just needs to have his sports on a regular basis. You can only watch the Investigative Discovery Channel and start watching some other things for so long. I love the cooking channel. I love those other things that I watch concerning crime and justice and other things. But man, I need my sports. I want my sports. I yearn for my sports. And there's a possibility now, worst case scenario, that the NFL draft could symbolize the last really normalized event in sports until 2021. We don't know what's going to be happening with the NBA. We don't know what's going to be happening with Major League Baseball or the NHL. We don't know in the fall what's going to be going down with football and college football and the return of the NBA and Wimbledon and MMA and boxing and all these other sports. We know that the Olympics, the Summer Olympics, are have been postponed until the year 2021. So we have absolutely, positively, undeniably no idea in terms of what's going to be happening when we'll see sports come around the corner. So... You might not be a fan of the NFL draft. You might think it's ridiculous. You might think it's a waste of time. But I'm telling you, if you're a sports guy like me, or even if you're not a sports guy like me who consumes so much sports, who lives and breathes so much sports, even if you're someone who's missing the day-to-day of sports and not watching stuff from 5, 10, 15 years and months and days ago or whatever and concerning the replays that sports are having, you might want to sit back and cherish watching the NFL draft because we don't know when something like this in terms of the present and future is going to be happening. So speaking on the NFL draft, the scenes, I just really want to concentrate mainly on the first two 
draft picks or the first two teams that are going to be drafting the Cincinnati Bengals, the Washington Snyder Skins. I also want to talk about some rumors going down with the NFL draft things that I've heard as we're getting closer and closer. It seems really that the first two picks are pretty much set in stone. When you think about the Cincinnati Bengals, they're they're probably going to be drafting Joe Burrow with the first pick. And when you take a look at the season that Burrow had at LSU, where he threw 60 touchdown passes, he had a 202 quarterback rating, which were new college football records. He had a 76 uh, completion percentage. He led LSU to an undefeated season, winning the national championship. We talk about him going 7-0 against the uh, top 10 teams, throwing 27 touchdowns and only two interceptions in those games. It was um, it was an Im- Unbelievable. And you also think about the fact that Joe Burrow is also a guy from Ohio with a great story. If you remember the speech that he gave when he won the Heisman Trophy, I mean, here's a guy where if you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you say, oh, yeah, season ticket holders, potential season ticket buyers and all these other things. We've got ourselves somebody that can be a detraction for our team to be more recognizable, for our team to be more relevant, for our team to actually get some attention in terms of this quarterback that we're having. He's a humble guy. He seems to be a genuine guy, a mature guy. So it looks like the Cincinnati Bengals, just on that alone, the fact that he's an Ohio boy, the fact that he even went to Ohio State for a couple of years, I mean, there's something also that's baked into the cake to which the reason for the Cincinnati Bengals to draft him number one. So I don't know, man, this guy's being compared with Tom Brady and all these types of things. I mean, can we can we kind of slow down, slow down on that a little bit? And when people are talking about, I mean, I'll compare Joe Burrow to Tom Brady. I mean, I'll compare him in the fact that, you know what, both of them are white. Both of them play quarterback in college. And both of them are normal human beings. Other than that, hey, you know what, everything else is off the table, especially when it comes to football skills and everything. So, yeah, it seems like the Cincinnati Bengals are going to go ahead. Mike Brown is the type of guy, if you really think about it, Mike Brown is not really the guy who's going to, I don't know, be a part of any like major wild, wild types of trades or some types of, you know, draft day shenanigans where all of a sudden maybe a team like the Miami Dolphins with their plethora of picks or maybe another team could try to entice Cincinnati to forfeit the opportunity for that number one pick to draft Joe Burrow that maybe somehow, some way the Dolphins could maybe finagle the Bengals to go ahead and take some of their draft picks or take all of their draft picks because Miami is truly enamored with drafting Joe Burrow. Mike Brown, the owner of the Cincinnati Bengals, and basically the guy who kind of oversees everything. He's kind of like the Jerry Jones, if you want to say. Maybe he doesn't have the GM as the title like Jerry Jones does, but in terms of the sway and the final decision on such things, Mike Brown does have that type of clout with the Cincinnati Bengals organization. So, you know, this was a situation where Mike Brown is not one of those guys who's going to come out and shake up the world or really shake things up. So when the Cincinnati Bengals, who for months have been talking about they're going to be taking Joe Burrow with the number one pick, you can best believe that despite the best attempts by other teams to try to remove Cincinnati from that number one pick, they are going to be taking Joe Burrow. But, uh, I mean, there's still, as I mentioned before in other podcasts, man, there's still some things going on where I take a look at Joe Burrow and I'm like, hey, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this is a guy where, yeah, I mean, he had all these things going for him in this, his senior year 
at LSU, you're talking about the Heisman Trophy. You're talking about 60 touchdowns. You're talking about, you know, 45 million yards thrown and all these types of things. But you know what? That transition from going to college football to the NFL, especially when you're going to be coming in with the responsibilities that Joe Burrow's going to have being drafted number one by the Cincinnati Bengals and then put on this team. I'm going to tell Joe Burrow something. Young man, this ain't going to be like LSU. You came into LSU, you were playing with top-tier elite five-star talent. You're talking about having elite, top-of-the-end, top-of-the-line type of talent at the running back position on the offensive line, at the wide receiver position, at the tight end position. You had a situation where, you know what, you knew walking into the walking into the stadium and then walking into the field that you had the upper hand on the opponent that you were going to be playing against. So with the offensive talent that they had, it was easier for Joe Burrow to do his thing and, 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 and do the you know, man, have the accomplishments that he had. You're going out to the Cincinnati Bengals. We don't know what's going to be happening with A.J. Green. We don't know who that number two wide receiver is going to be. We know that Joe Mixon, the running back for the Bengals, has rushed for 2,000, or excuse me, 1,000 yards in two consecutive seasons, but this is not going to be the same situation. So how does Joe Burrow translate? How does Joe Burrow's skills translate from what he did in college for only one year, I might add, to now the NFL, and also we're talking about just like when Tom Brady left the New England Patriots and now one of the ridiculous, asinine discussions that people are having, debates that people are having is, well, who made who? Who was more important to who? Did Bill Belichick make Tom Brady or did Tom Brady make Bill Belichick? We're going to find this out. Well, as much of a ridiculous argument that might be, it's more of a solidified, it's more of a cohesion type of argument when you're speaking about Joe Barry or you're speaking about the relationship between Joe Burrow and Joe Brady. Because the reason why I say that is, is this a situation where Joe Brady, who was not the offense, everybody talks about him being the offensive coordinator for LSU last season. He wasn't the offensive coordinator. He was the passing day coach. So this wasn't the guy who had the total autonomy from an offensive standpoint, from the offensive things, things is, uh, he had to go ahead and he had to share the offensive responsibilities with uh, LSU's offensive coordinator. So he was nothing more than the passing coach. Now it was very important. It was a big responsibility. And when you take a look at the the, the turnaround that Joe Burrow had from his junior year to his senior year, where in his junior year with LSU, he threw for 2,800 yards, 16 touchdowns, five interceptions, and a 57% uh, completion percentage. Now, all of a sudden, that was before Joe Burrow. Burrow comes from the New Orleans Saints tree over to LSU and then basically just changes the outcome to, uh, to the prospects of Joe Burrow. Now, all of a sudden, you're sitting there, you're saying to yourself, well, wait a minute. How is Joe Burrow going to do without Joe Brady? It's going to be very interesting. I mean, I was watching Joe Burrow play last season at LSU, and I was just thinking to myself, oh, yeah, I mean, he's pretty good. He's decent and everything. I'm, I'm speaking about when Burrow was in his junior year. I saw him play against Auburn. He had, had a nice little comeback, but it was nothing, nothing like he did in his senior year at LSU. How much of that should be contributed to Joe Brady, and how much should that be just Joe Burrow 
maturing and growing because if you take a look at it, he's been playing college football now for four years. Two of them were pedestrian, not unforgettable. The other one was just average, and then he exploded all in one year. Again, how much was that due to Joe Brady and how much of that was just due to Joe Burrow finally finding the corner? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he went to the same crossroads down there in Mississippi as uh, Robert Johnson did, came back, and who knows? Who knows if the devil owns his soul? We'll be figuring out that a little bit later on. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Ah, Boomer Esiason. How about this? Did you hear this stuff about Boomer Esiason? One thing also that Joe Burrow, that we don't know how he's going to do in terms of him being a franchise quarterback. First of all, we have to establish the expectations of what Joe Burrow is going to be about in four, five, six, seven, ten years from now. As much as... We want Joe Burrow to come in and be that guy in his rookie year to do this and do that. With the NFL season now not conducting OTAs and training camps possibly and maybe starting the season a little bit later, not having the regular offseason that many of these rookies can go through, we don't know what type of rookie season Burrow is going to have. But we also... I also want to know this. How is it going to be now with the expectations? Everybody wants that... Everybody wants that responsibility at the beginning of like, yeah, you know what? I'm the hometown kid, and yeah, I'm going to come in and turn around this morbid franchise, and yeah, they might be 2-14, and 14, but you know what? I can be that guy. I can be that savior. I can have that leadership responsibility placed on me, and I can take it. I can handle it. I can move with it. I can groove with it, and I can get these guys to go in the right direction. Then they actually get into the situations. Then they actually come to the franchise of the organization then they actually get into what's going down on a day-to-day basis concerning this organization how they do things on and off the field and all of a sudden they're lost all of a sudden now they sit back and say whoa wait a minute i didn't know it was that bad i didn't know it was that dysfunctional i didn't know it was in a place in a situation the atmosphere the chemistry was so toxic and so negative and so unprofessional and so dysfunctional i didn't know any of this I bet you Dwayne Haskins didn't know any of this. He might have had an inkling. He might have had maybe some whispers when he was drafted by the Washington Snyderskins last season. But remember him? Oh, man, 14 other teams made the mistake. I'm going to go into D.C. and I'm going to work hard. and I'm going to give everything that I've got. And I'm going to learn quick. And I'm going to soak everything in. And I'm confident in my abilities. I'm confident in my mental and my physical. And I'm going to go in there. And I'm going to have an awesome season. I'm going to do this with Washington. And I'm going to turn this around. And I'm going to save... Jay Gruden's job, and oh my goodness gracious, then he actually got to D.C., then he actually got within the organization, then he actually got to work with the coaching staff on the offensive side with the uh, with the Washington Snyderskins, and then he found out, oh shit, this is really as dysfunctional and ridiculous as everybody says it is, and it took him a while to finally get things going and moving in the right direction with all the turmoil, with all the nonsense, with all the news, with all the dysfunction that surrounded the Washington Dumpskins. So now you go back to a team that's just maybe as equal in terms of their dysfunction, in terms of their in terms of their winning on the field, the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, Joe Burrow, all of, Joe Burrow can say all the right things in the interview process. Joe Burrow can say all the right things when he's being drafted. Joe Burrow can sit up there and talk about, yeah, I'm the guy, I'm the guy who's gonna turn this program around. Man, Carson Palmer couldn't turn that program around. Andy Dalton couldn't turn that program around. There's a lot of quarterbacks out there 
for Cincinnati that since Kinder Anderson came around really haven't had to been able to turn things around with the exception of Boomer Esiason. And Boomer Esiason is not walking through that door. Sam Weiss is dead, so he can't walk through that door. Stanley Robinson is too busy looking for some lines to blow, and he's too old to be playing, so he ain't going to be coming through that door. Lewis Billups is no longer with us, so he ain't coming through that door. Icky Woods ain't shuffling, ain't doing the Icky Shuffle for Cincinnati anymore. He's too old, so he ain't coming through that door anymore. So you tell me which player, what player, other than maybe Geno Atkins, maybe uh, maybe a Carlos Dunlap, who else is going to be part of the resurgence to bring Cincinnati not back to respectability, but how about maybe get them to double their win total from last season, which was two wins. Where are we going to find that? What offensive guy is going to be able to take the load of that? That's what you're going to be asking Andy Dalton to do? Excuse me, that's what you're going to be asking Joe Burrow to do? I don't know. I don't know. Boomer Esiason comes out and starts talking about, you know, starts comparing Joe Burrow to LeBron James. He said, the quote was, I, I equate him to what LeBron James, I, I equate him to when LeBron James came out of high school his senior year and the Cavaliers had the top pick. They had some good years under Larry Nance, but they were never thought of as the Bulls or the Lakers or the Celtics. It wasn't just Larry Nance. It was Mark Price. It was Brad Doherty. It was John Hotplate Williams. Come on. It was Craig Elo. Come on now. But he said that they had some good years under Larry Nance, but they were, Never thought of as the Bulls or the Lakers or the Celtics. They were the Cleveland Cavaliers, for God's sakes. He grew up in the shadow of LeBron and brought them the championship. Now it's Joe Burrow's time. This is his time. He's got to go home and get it straight. And he's the reason they got it straight. And he's the reason they get it straight. That's the way it should be written. And that's the way he should be looking at it. Well, number one. LeBron James was born in Akron, number one, and he was a Dallas Cowboy fan, so I don't think that he was cheering for the Cleveland Browns or the Cincinnati Bengals. I don't know if he was a Cleveland Cavaliers fan. I know that he was a Michael Jordan fan who played for the Chicago Bulls, so more than anything, he was probably a Chicago Bulls fan, not a Cleveland Cavaliers fan, especially when you're speaking about the glory years before LeBron came to the Cavaliers. I mean, he might have been a little bit too old to understand how good those guys who I just mentioned in some of the things that they accomplished with that team of Doherty and Mark Price and Larry Nance and those guys. He might have been a little bit too young. I mean, hell, he might not even been born to remember the good times during that era of Cleveland basketball. So there was really nothing. If you take a look at LeBron James, he's been a New York Yankee fan. He's a Dallas Cowboy fan. He's a the only Ohio team I think he's he claims to be the number one super fan or claims to be that team is Ohio State, the Ohio State football team. I don't even think if he was eligible to go to college or if he had to go to college, if he was, if he was uh, coming out now, I don't even think he would even go to Ohio State or, or any of the schools in Ohio if he was the number one basketball player coming out of high school in this era of the one and done. So to compare Joe Burrow to LeBron James in that situation, I think is wrong. And also the situations were a lot more and a lot more was on LeBron's plate, Boomer, when you're speaking about comparing Joe Burrow to LeBron James. The NFL was not asking Joe Burrow to save their league. When LeBron came in in 2003, the league, the NBA, was at its lowest point. They had suffered some devastating losses. They had suffered some real embarrassment. If you're speaking about the malice at the palace, they were going through the situation where Jordan retired for the second time and he wasn't going to be coming back. No, 
No, Jordan retired the first time. So this no, the second time that Jordan retired from the Bulls after he hit that game-winning shot. And then you're speaking about the lockout that brought people down as far as their enthusiasm for the NBA. And then you had to also come over the racial stereotypes that the public seemed to have toward the NBA when they were speaking about the league being too black and all of these guys who were in the league right now. They didn't have an education. They couldn't talk straight. They had too many tattoos. They had cornrows. They had nothing but posse. They smoked too much weed. They couldn't hit a jump shot. All they wanted to do was dunk. Their fundamentals were down. These were horrible human beings. I remember that nonsense going through the NBA at the time. If you're speaking about the toxic situation that LeBron James came into in 2003. Oh, by the way, as a guy who didn't step one foot onto a college campus, a guy who was straight from high school to the NBA, a guy who was 18 when he he was asked to do these things, again, not just save the Cleveland Cavaliers, but be the guy that was going to save the NBA. I mean, Melo was with them also in terms of that. Dwayne Wade was with them in terms of that. But the leader of the pack that was going to bring the NBA to the prominence and to the success that it was now, way back in 2003, was this 18-year-old from Akron, Ohio, coming straight from um, the um, public, the uh, private high school that he played at, whose name I forgot right now. But that was LeBron James. Joe Burrow is 23 years old. Joe Burrow has been to two colleges. Joe Burrow has gotten the opportunity to learn under the tutelage of a Joe Brady and an Urban Meyer and others. Uh, Joe Burrow is a guy who has been in college football for four years. And basically, if you want to say five years. So Lamar Jackson won the MVP for the Baltimore Ravens at 22. Joe Burrow's first year in trying to see what he can do about helping a franchise win is he's 23. So to compare LeBron James and Joe Burrow, I think is a little bit of a stretch. No, it's a huge stretch when you're speaking about that at the time. I mean, just remember how toxic it was with the NBA. I remember all the guff. I remember all the grief that Allen Iverson from Georgetown University would get because I was the one man that was defending him. Where the guy was, you know, he was, he the way that he walked, the way that he talked, the way that he conducted himself and all these other things. Bubba Chuck, I was always the guy I was talking about. There isn't anyone more real in sports than Allen Iverson. You might not like him as far as who he is as a person, but Allen Iverson is, is real. Allen Iverson is raw as a human being. He's going to let you see exactly who he is. He's not going to hide under uh, corporate. He's not going to be a corporate guy. He's not going to try to hide his image so he can sell more basketball shoes or more uh, or more clothes or anything like that. He's not going to try to craft an image which will be which will be uh, uh, inviting to white people because, you know what, he needs to sell more shoes and build his brand. Allen Iverson wasn't going to do that. Allen Iverson was going to tell you who he is, show you who he is, talk to you about who he is, and that's it. And if you like him, great. If you don't, great. But he ain't ever going to change. He's not going to change. So that's one of the things I loved about Allen Iverson. But also because of that, and Stephon Marbury and the other things that I just mentioned in terms of where the NBA was when LeBron James came into the league in 2003, the NBA was at its lowest point. I mean, hell, you had Ray, the Ray Caruth situation in the NFL. You had a situation in the NFL or situations after situations where NFL players were getting themselves in trouble left and right, beating up their women, doing this, doing that. A few years from the Ray Lewis situation where he was charged with obstruction of justice and a double murder. We had all of this nonsense going on, but yet still, when you ask the public, when you ask the sporting public, when LeBron was making his move to go from making that transition to go from high school basketball 
to the NBA. I mean, you have people out there, many, majority, uh, people who said that, you know what, in terms of role models are concerned, they're more would be inclined to have their sons or daughter follow football players than they would NBA players. That's how bad it was when LeBron James came in to the NBA. In the NBA, when David Stern asked him, basically saying, hey, look, you're going to be the guy that's going to change things around, similar to what Magic and Bird did back in the uh, 1979-80 season when they came straight from Indiana State and Michigan State and came into the NBA and helped revitalize the league and turn that league around. Well, LeBron James was asked to do that in 2003. So, again, this all goes back to Boomer Esiason's assumption or, or, or thoughts that it would be copacetic to compare LeBron James and Joe Burrow. And that's going just talks about the type of pressure or the type of responsibility that Joe Burrow in some circles, mainly in Ohio in the Midwest region, those are some of the things that's going to be placed on him. Joe Burrow can't do what LeBron James did. Joe Burrow can't be expected, especially in his rookie season, to do the things that LeBron James was supposed to be doing or LeBron James did in the first couple of years. Yeah, Joe Burrow is not going to even have the opportunity to have training camps or go to OTAs and meet with his teammates to work out with his teammates. He's not going to have that response. He's not going to have that opportunity because of the social distancing, because of the pandemic that's being placed barriers on us right now for us doing normal type things. Joe Burrow is not going to have that opportunity. So even if the league starts on time, it would be, it, it wouldn't be wise. It would be unrealistic. It wouldn't be fair to Burrow for us to assume that he is going to continue the success that he had. Of course, we're not going to be talking about him as far as a statistical uh, uh standpoint for him to put up the same type of numbers, but for him to have the success and turn the Cleveland or the Cincinnati Bengals around, it ain't going to happen. It never was going to happen. Joe Burrow might wind up being a great quarterback. I mean, hell, who been, who, who would have thought that when the New England Patriots dropped, drafted Tom Brady in the sixth round of the, what, 2000 or 2001 NFL draft that they were going to say, oh yeah, there goes the greatest quarterback who ever lived. Oh yeah, there goes one of the greatest football players whoever lived, we're ready to rock and roll and win six championships now. No one expected that. So the expectations or the or the things that we can expect out of Joe Burrow, who knows, man? We don't know if he's going to be Tom Brady. We don't know if he's going to be Tim Couch. But to sit there and talk about, man, he's going to be the, to compare him with LeBron James, and now he's the guy that's going to get the Cincinnati Bengals going in the right direction, man, that's... That's a lot to be asking from Joe Burrow, and I don't think it's fair to place that type of those expectations, even if maybe it was in jest, maybe if he really didn't mean it, to even have the, that connection made. Don't think it's fair to Joe Burrow. Don't think it's fair to Zach Taylor. Don't think it's really bare, fair to the Cincinnati Bengals organization to expect or even think about or even mention something like that, comparing him to an icon, especially in the Ohio region, especially in the Midwest, like LeBron James, Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace with you. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about Joe Burrow, the presumptive number one pick for the Cincinnati Bengals. Here's another thing that kind of concerns me. I, that, again, you're going to ask me, how's Joe Burrow going to do in the NFL? I don't know, man. I, I have no idea 
I don't know if he's going to be Matt Ryan. I don't know if he's going to be Dak Prescott. I don't know if he's going to be Matthew Stafford. I don't know. I don't know what the hell is he going to be. I don't know if he's going to be one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever played, or I don't know if he's going to be putting the same the same stature as Jamarcus Russell, Tim Couch, and Blake Bortles and others. I have no idea. That's what makes sports so fun, doesn't it? Isn't it? We don't know exactly how this is going to end up. So, unlike a Steven Seagal movie from the 80s, who we know at the end of the movie that he was going to be the victor. He knew that, we knew that Steven Seagal was going to whoop the shit out of somebody at the end of the movie and be the hero, be the man, be the great one. We don't know what's going to be happening in the NFL. We would love to see this kid Joe Burrow from a small town in Ohio come up and lift the Cincinnati Bengals to unprecedented heights. It would be great. Great story. Awesome. Wonderful. Fantastic. But we don't know if it's going to happen despite the skill set, despite what scouts say, despite what uh, the prognosticators, prognosticators say. We don't know. That's what makes sports so dull, gone fun. But one of the things also I'm thinking about with Burrow going to the Cincinnati Bengals organization is the team and the coaching staff that's going to be around them in Cincinnati. If the, I mean, I take a look at someone like an Andrew Luck. What would, what would Andrew Luck be, for instance, if he joined the Indianapolis Colts now than when he was first drafted by that team? And you're speaking about the difference in GMs and you're speaking about the difference in coaching. Could you imagine now a, 22 or 23 year old Andrew Luck coming out of Stanford to be coached by Frank Wright. Do you know how much better it would be being run by an organization by Ryan Grigson? Do you know how much better that team would be right now? Do you know how much better Andrew Luck would have been going four or five years down the road? How much better it would be? A lot of times it's all about the franchise. It's all about the coaching staff. It's all about the surrounding teammates on whether a quarterback, especially in his formative years, is really going to have the opportunity to be living up to the potential. We don't know. We don't know. But as again, the Bengals finished last season 2-14. They suffered major injuries. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for them being as bad as they were last season. They suffered major injuries even before the season started. When you're speaking about A.J. Green, who missed the entire 2019 because he suffered an uh, ankle injury in the team's first training camp practice. You're speaking about offensive tackle Jonah Williams. That was, he was Cincinnati's first-round draft pick, who had been slotted to start uh, at the offensive left tackle, lost for the season due to a shoulder surgery that was suffered in OTAs. You're speaking about the offensive tackle Cordy Glenn, who replaced Williams at the left offensive tackle. He suffered a concussion in the preseason opener. That man didn't return until late November, and how much of a difference could he have made? So you're speaking about that team last year having 12 former draft picks finished on the uh, reserve list for the Cincinnati Bengals of 2019. So really, how good were they? Who knows? Who absolutely knows? I know that their best offensive weapon for Cincinnati is Running back Joe Mixon, as I mentioned before, he ran for over 1,000 yards the past two seasons with a below-average offensive line. How much does the how much does A.J. Green have in the tank? Will the A.J. Green, will we see the A.J. Green of, 27, of uh, 2017 where he was voted one of the top 25 players in the league where he caught 75 passes for over 1,000 yards and eight touchdowns? Is that A.J. Green going to come back? We are speaking about a guy who's, what, 31, 32 years old. We are speaking about a guy who... Again, missed the entire season, and the season before that played only nine games because of injury. 
Now, I know that they franchise, uh, the, the Bengals franchise tagged him. They're going to go ahead and see what they can do to giving him a, a really nice contract extension. But who knows, man? Is that A.J. Green who, for a while there, I mean, you're talking about 2013, he was one of the elite receivers in the game. Is that A.J. Green of 2017 going to come back? And even if he does come back at 31 years old, can he really be the number one wide receiver to help someone like an Andy Dalton, especially right now, since those guys really aren't having the opportunity to go ahead and work with each other in terms of going somewhere? I don't know where it is. Maybe it was A.J. Green's hometown. Maybe it was his beach home. Maybe it's somewhere for those guys just to get together, talk about some things, throw some passes, and run some routes in terms of uh, – working on the initial chemistry. Again, not having the opportunity because of the virus to work during OTAs. Who knows? Who knows? I know that the defense is going to be good. I know the defense is going to be solid. I mean, the secondary is already upgraded through the free agency moves that they made. I know that they have two producing players on the defensive line and Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins. So I know from that standpoint that we're not going to be asking Joe Burrow to go out and do what he did at LSU, which is put up, 31, 35 points on a regular basis. I think that defense from Cincinnati is the type of defense that can have them being a potential playoff team. It's all all going to be concerned about what's going to be going down in the offensive side of the ball for the Cincinnati Bengals. And you're taking a look at the NFC, the AFC North, where you have the Baltimore Ravens and where you have the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, how good are the Cleveland Browns going to be with a new coach and some of the moves that they made through free agency? So it's going to be, be a competitive division in the AFC North. And you're going to be starting yourself a rookie quarterback when you have Ben Roethlisberger coming back for the Steelers, when you have Lamar Jackson coming back from the for the Baltimore Ravens, where you have Baker Mayfield to see if he can turn things around in year three with him with the Cleveland Browns, and you're going to be starting a rookie quarterback in Joe Burrow. A lot of expectations. Again, moving back up to what Boomer Esiason was talking about, comparing him to LeBron James. If Joe Burrow can have the same type of impact as far as a football player that LeBron James had, his rookie year impacting the Cleveland Cavaliers, well then, you know what? Not saying that the Cincinnati Bengals are going to be making the playoffs, but they should do a lot better than say, I don't know, two and fourteen, three or fourteen, three and thirteen, or four and twelve. So we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, Joe Burrow, who knows what kind of quarterback he's going to be, man? Who knows what's going to be happening? Let's see what the season is going to be in terms of when September and August and such a roll around, then we can maybe get an idea to see where the NFL is, see where see where our world is at the time. Let's see moving forward. But Joe Burrow, the number one pick, Ohio kid, going to Cincinnati, a 2-14 team last season, a team with the exception of the Sam Weish and the Marvin Lewis era over the past 25, 30 years, had been nothing but disappointment and dysfunction. We'll see exactly as that franchise quarterback Let's see what homeboy Burrow can do.
The podcast name is Wendell World, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Am I sore? I don't know why I'm so sore. Really didn't sleep well last night. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to get myself comfortable in here. Right now, we're in the middle of the season out here in Vegas where... I don't know, man. I'm just trying to see what I can do to keep warm. And then when I try to get, when it gets too hot and I try to cool it down and then I get too cold. So last night it was too hot. So I turned the heat off and I opened up a little bit of the blind. I opened up the windows to my bedroom as I fell asleep. And when I woke up this morning, I was freezing because overnight it uh, went down pretty fast as far as the temperature is concerned. But Interesting stuff, man, in terms of what I could try to do to keep myself healthy. But as of right now, just a little bit sore. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Can't wait for this um, start. The, the last ride on the uh, ESPN deal about the uh, Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan's the last ride with Dennis Rodman and Bill Wennington and Scottie Pippen and all those good guys and Steve Kern, Stutch. As such, and that has sparked all of this debate about, well, you know, how great were the Bulls and compared to the Warriors and how great were the Dynasty. And, you know, with ESPN, I mean, with the dick sucking that they do with Michael Jordan, of course, you know, you have to take reverence. You have to be, you have to kind of walk on eggshells, you know, because, you know, you don't want to wake up the Jordan heirs. You don't want, you don't want to wake up the sheep that adore Michael Jordan. And, and when I talk about adore Michael Jordan, I'm talking about there's one level of reverence toward Jordan where he was like, yeah, he's the greatest, he's the man, this, this, that, and the other. Then you have these other knuckleheads, and then you have these other fools who just love Jordan to death, who feel that, you know what, he can still walk on water. You know, literally, he could walk on water, basically. I mean, he can do nothing wrong. I mean, we've seen this with the idiot that's in the White House. We've seen his supporters. We've seen Bernie Sanders supporters go nuts. I mean, you put the most fervent Jordan supporters in that in that same boat. And if anybody, anybody, speaking of LeBron James, anybody, even is in the same breath, even if, hey, you know what, um, there might be a small chance in some small way that LeBron James might be better than Michael Jordan. No, 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 no. You know, they start, they start going nuts. You, you see these idiots on Twitter. It's like, you know, hey, LeBron James, you know, he's a, uh, Every milestone that LeBron James has, and it's like, well, you know what? I mean, Jordan didn't even do that. And it's not even a situation where they're trying to put him down. It's just like, hey, you know what? The accomplishment that LeBron James just did is so impressive that not even the great Michael Jordan could even do it. I mean, even when they put it in that context, you hear these fucking assholes come out of the woodwork. No, 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 no. Well, that's because, well, that's because, well, if Jordan was playing in this era, he's like, geez, man, could you just give me a fucking break? I mean, Kobe went through the same shit. Kobe went through the same nonsense. I mean, yeah, Kobe wanted to be Michael Jordan more than anything. And then the Jordanaires got a hold of him. No, 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 no. How many championships can he win without Shaq? You know, they started doing all this bullshit and, Kobe finally said, look, I ain't better than Jordan. I really never claimed to be, but I don't want to be Michael Jordan. I don't, please don't compare me to Michael Jordan anymore. It's amazing. Maybe I'll do get more into a um, discussion about this moving forward, especially in the summer where there's going to be nothing to talk about because sports is basically going to be on hiatus 
except for the day-to-day of when sports is going to come back. But the NBA, Michael Jordan, I've always said this, and I haven't said this on a podcast, but I used to say this all the time on my radio show back there in Phoenix, Arizona, KDUS. But um, I used to say this, man, Michael Jordan was the greatest thing, one of the greatest things to happen to the NBA in the present but for the future, it's one of the most burdensome things moving forward. I, I, it's just amazing to me how a really great basketball player after Michael Jordan can never really have any peace, can never really be accepted for his greatness because it's like these fucking asshole Jordan losing fan club boys and girls will never let them truly like, it's like, oh yeah, well Jordan this, Jordan that, every accomplishment whether it was Kobe Bryant, whether it was Tracy McGrady, whether it was Vince Carter, whether it was LeBron James, whoever, anytime we want to go ahead and we want to celebrate something in terms of a great accomplishment that this player made, we have these fucking jackasses, these Jordan Air fucking dick-sucking losers come out and sit there and like, oh, no, no, no. Well, Jordan, well, he's not better than Jordan. He's not greater than Jordan. Jordan would have done better. It's like, Jesus, fuck, man. I mean, how, who who brought up Michael Jordan? Can Kobe Bryant have a day in the sun? This is before the tragic incident with him and his wonderful, fantastic, beautiful daughter, Gigi. I mean, before that incident happened and before his playing days were over when Kobe was still in his prime and Kobe was, basically the face running the league. I mean, my goodness gracious, every accomplishment that Kobe Bryant had, here come these fucking Jordan assholes. Oh yeah, no, 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 Jordan this, Jordan that. It's like, man, shut the fuck up. That motherfucker hadn't played 10 fucking years, man. Give it a rest. Leave it alone. It's just uh, now the same thing with LeBron James. I mean, damn, LeBron James is going to go down as one of the five greatest players who's ever played the game, period. LeBron James arguably, arguably, arguably could be the best NBA basketball player who ever lived. I know for a fact. Sorry, Jordan Harris. I'm getting angry. Sorry, Jordan Harris. LeBron James is the most versatile basketball player who has ever played. Does that make him the greatest? I don't know. I don't care. Who cares? But he, as far as the versatility is concerned, 6'8", strong as a beast, can play the point guard, can lead the league in scoring, can be up there in assists, can be a triple-double machine, could defend the best player, could defend the center, could defend the point guard, could defend someone as big and strong as Steven Adams for a little bit, could defend someone as quick and as shifty as, say, for instance, Derrick Rhodes in his MVP season and anywhere else in between. LeBron James could have... LeBron James was that guy at 6'8", 250 pounds with uber-athleticism. Nobody, nobody, nobody in the NBA history, nobody has ever had the combination of athletic gifts, physical talent, and basketball genius like LeBron James. Never! Michael Jordan wasn't 6'8", 250 pounds. As much as a great, unbelievable physical specimen that Michael Jordan was from an athletic standpoint, the ability to jump and fly and all these type of things, that man wasn't... 250 pounds, six foot eight, like LeBron was when he motored to the basket. Ain't nobody was going to get in his way with LeBron James at 27, 28, 29, 30 years old. No, LeBron James was the most versatile basketball player who's ever lived. And God, I hope I live long enough to figure out who is going to be the next evolution of LeBron James. I mean, we, we, we've had the Dr. J's to the 
We've had the Elgin Baylors to the Dr. J's to the Michael Jordan. You know what I'm saying? We've had the we've had the Bob Pettit to the Rick Berries to the Larry Birds to the Luka Doncic, and I'm just interested to see what evolution comes up after that. For me, it's going to be interesting to see what is who is going to be the next LeBron James in terms of who's going to be the next generation LeBron James. Because as the physical gets better and everything, are we going to see a guy who's going to be seven foot one who's going to be able to play the point guard position, be able to shoot threes, shoot off the dribble, and did dunk on everybody, not hitting his head on the backboard type of thing or hitting his head on the rim? I mean, are we going to see a guy of just incredible grace and athleticism? Packed into a frame that's going to be seven foot two, two hundred and eighty five pounds, and he's going to be a point guard in the year twenty fifty four. Twenty fifty four, I'll be what? Twenty fifty four, I'll be eighty five years old. Okay, maybe not. Maybe not twenty fifty four. I don't got that much time. But we're talking about maybe in the year twenty forty five. Is that if, when we take a look at the NBA in twenty forty five? Is that what we're going to be looking at? Point guards who are going to be seven feet tall, centers who are going to be seven foot six. Power forwards and small forwards are going to be 6'11 to 7'3. I mean, is that what we're going to be looking at? And all can play and all can shoot and all can dribble? Are we going to be taking a look at that in the next 20 to 25 years or 30 years from uh, from now? It'll be interesting. My whole point is that just the evolution of man is one of the reasons why I said LeBron James is the most versatile, most unique basketball player who's ever played. And you say something like that, and oh my goodness, people who love Michael Jordan, people who grew up with Michael Jordan, people who were Chicago Bulls fan and grew up being a Michael Jordan fan, they fucking lose their minds. Oh yeah, oh yeah, well, Jordan was 6-0 in the playoffs in the MVP, oh yeah, oh yeah, well, you know, he played in the league where you could actually, you know, take a baseball bat into someone's knees when they were driving the basket, oh yeah, oh yeah, I would like to see LeBron James play in this era, or you know, Jordan era where everybody was so physical, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's like, it's like, man, leave it alone. I've always said it before, you know what, man, when we're talking about the greatest in any sport, I don't care who it is. I don't care what sport it is. I don't care if it's baseball or tennis or basketball, MMA, boxing. I don't care what it is, man. When you start talking about trying to figure out who's the greatest, it's just mind-numbingly stupid to me, man. Because when you start talking about like four or five or six of the greatest who's ever played, I mean, just take a look, man. Really, it's kind of like who's the most beautiful woman in the world? Is it Boomerang's Halle Berry or is it... Desperados sell my heck. I mean, how can you answer a question like that? And also, would you be upset with either or? <laughs> would you? I mean, are you going to sit there and complain and whine and complain if all of a sudden for you to for you to hang out with and this, that, and the other and do what you want to do, it's going to be like, oh, damn, and I got Selma Hayek instead of Halle Berry. Oh, shit. What the hell am I going to do with this ugly man? Are you really going to go that route? You're going to say, thank the Lord, thank you, Jesus, and I'm going to be just happy as, I'm going to be happy as punch. Same thing when you're talking about Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Either one you get, as far as starting your ultimate team, you're going to be happy as shit, unless you're a complete fucking dumbass. But, you know, how did I get off on this? Here I am speaking about, I wanted to get into the Washington football team and talking about their draft pick, and then they just got started on this whole Michael Jordan, LeBron James, who's the greatest at that another clip. Save that nonsense for later. Save it for another podcast, all right? Enough. Bad Wendell.
Bad show host. Bad, bad, bad. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Getting back now to football. <sighs> Getting back now to uh, football. The Washington Snyder Skins. I don't use their nicknames because it's offensive. So the Washington Snyder Skins, inept skins, dumb skins, don't know what they're doing skins, dysfunctional skins. Just place any name in front of skins and it'll be acceptable to me. But Washington has the second pick in the NFL draft. The last season they finished 3-13. and 13. If you take a look at their biggest needs, the offensive line need help, needs help because Trent Williams, for all intents and purposes, is not going to be playing for Washington. He had made that very clear. They don't have an NFL-ready tight end. They released Jordan Reed because, I mean, how many times could this man, who had the potential to be one of the best tight ends in the game, to injury-prone, got concussions, see you later, and Vernon Davis retired, so they need to do something about the tight end situation. Jeremy Sprinkle is now the guy who's going to be asked to be the starting tight end so far. He led the team, as far as the tight ends is concerned, with 26 catches for 241 yards. Yikes! They need another quality wide receiver for hopefully the quarterback going into the 2020 season will be Dwayne Haskins for the Washington quarterback skins. Terry McLaurin was a bright spot for Washington, a man who caught 58 passes on 93 targets for 919 yards and seven touchdowns. But when you take a look at the rest of the quarterback for Washington combined, whether it be Kelvin Harmon, Steven Sims Jr., Paul Richardson Jr., Trey Quinn, They caught a combined number of 118 passes for 1,800 yards and seven touchdowns. So one, two, three, four. Those four wide receivers combined caught as many touchdown passes as Terry McLaurin. So those guys definitely, speaking about the Washington professional football team, definitely need help at the wide receiver position. But going into the draft, the main scuttlebutt or the main discussion point concerning the football team, concerning the Washington football team is, are they going to draft the quarterback? Are they going to trade down and acquire more picks and along with the quarterback? Or are they just going to go ahead and take the best player that's available, which is Chase Young? Now, there's arguments to be made for all three questions. If you're speaking about trading down and acquiring more picks, You look at maybe a situation with the Miami Dolphins to acquire more picks. I mean, they have three picks in the first round. If you're speaking about Miami with the number five, with the number 18, and with the number 26 pick. So if I'm Washington, I'm sitting there going, okay, you know what? You want the number two pick so you can go up and trade for Tua? Then, okay, we're going to be taking the fifth and the 18th pick. And we'll start from there. We'll go ahead and start from there. The Dolphins have 14 draft picks for this upcoming draft. If I'm Washington and those guys are looking to move up to draft a quarterback like Tua, okay, we're open for business, but this is what it's going to this is what it's going to take and we'll start right there in terms of the two first round draft picks. So, you take a look at for Washington if this deal was going to be made and we spoke about some of the weaknesses this team had when you're speaking about the offensive line, when you're speaking about the wide receiver, when you're speaking about possibly the quarterback, cornerback position, Josh Norman was released. He signed with Buffalo, so you're going to need maybe a shut, you know, not maybe, you're going to need a shutdown corner. There's so many holes on the Washington football team that you sit there and you say, well, okay, if we go ahead and we get out of the number two pick and we can get multiple picks with that, we can go ahead and we can have more opportunities to fill some of the deficiencies that our team has right now. So you could be taking a look at the number five pick if they 
potentially made a trade with Miami involving the number five pick for Miami to move up to number two to draft two and Washington moves back to number five. The Snyder skins could still be in the position to draft themselves someone like a Jeff Okuda to replace Josh Norman and Isaiah Simmons, who the player with probably the most superstar potential outside of Chase Young. You're talking about a situation where maybe they could go ahead and get themselves an offensive lineman, maybe draft themselves Jadrick Willis Jr. of Alabama. There's possibilities there. Maybe you can go ahead, if you want to stretch, get yourself a, a C.D. Lamb of Oklahoma. Maybe not with the number five pick, but there's potential there to still pick up an impact player, even though they would be missing on the opportunity to draft themselves the best player in the draft by many prognosticators, the person with the lowest floor and the highest ceiling, whatever that means, in Chase Young. So if the Washington football team did that, they go ahead and get themselves the number five pick. They go ahead and get themselves the number 18 pick from Miami. Then you're speaking about the possibility of them maybe getting that wide receiver that they need in Justin Jefferson or maybe T. Higgins. Uh, Huggins, excuse me, from Clemson, maybe get themselves an offensive lineman like Andrew Thomas from Georgia. So there's possibilities there. I don't think against uh, C.D. Lamb or the two kids from Alabama, the wide receivers, Henry Shrugs Jr. or Jerry Judy, they probably won't be available at number 18, but you can still get yourself some quality players. That would be the situation if, or that would be the argument I think people could be, make, could be making for the Washington football team to move out of that number two draft pick and get themselves, acquire themselves more players. Basically what the argument would be is you could get yourself two or three good players and two or three really good players is better than one great player, especially when you are as inept and dysfunctional and lacking of talent as the Washington football team was and they showed and they displayed last season. So that's one argument. Eh, I I don't believe in that argument. I mean, unless you can get yourself another one or two impactful players. Look, there's not, there's never in the draft at the beginning of the draft. Now, maybe things, not maybe, things always pan out toward three or four or five years ago that there were multiple players who were impactful, who were, you know, there who could really lead a team to a championship, to a Super Bowl, to an all-pro selection and all those things. But if I'm Washington, I don't I don't go ahead and I don't do that. Another situation is where for Washington, another scenario is drafting a quarterback with the number two pick. Now, the only player that uh, Washington would draft if they went ahead and draft themselves a quarterback with the number two pick would be Tua. Now, Dwayne Haskins was picked with the 15th selection last season, and that was supposed to be a Daniel Snyder selection, which also led to the dismissal of Jay Gruden. Jay Gruden did not want to go with Dwayne Haskins. They thought, or the coaching staff and the head coach thought that Dwayne Haskins was a couple of years away from being a couple of years away from being a starting quarterback, Jay Gruden being a a quarterback guy in terms of developing and working with quarterbacks. He said, nah, man, Dwayne Haskins, don't think so. Daniel Snyder was like, yeah, I think so, and I'm writing your checks. So guess who we're drafting at number 15? Thank you. You're not going to be long for this job anywhere anyway, so why do we give a fuck what you think, Jay Gruden? But basically, so Dwayne Haskins is a... Daniel Snyder guy. But now with the hiring of Ron Rivera, this will be interesting. Now with the hiring of Ron Rivera, he was given total autonomy in terms of, you know, the picking and the and the moves and building the team. He's the guy now 
Now we've seen this and I've do this before when he hired Mike Shanahan. And at the beginning, things worked out pretty well until some guy named Robert Griffin III came down the pike. And Shanahan was like, no, nah, I don't think so. And, and Snyder was like, yeah, I think so. And that kind of started the relationship being torn apart between Shanahan and Snyder. But for a couple of years, when Shanahan was, giving, was given total control of the football team, for the most part, Dan Snyder stayed away. He wasn't meddling. He wasn't doing any of that stuff. So maybe this is a situation with Ron Rivera, a guy who has been to the Super Bowl as a coach and won the Super Bowl as a player with the Chicago Bears back in the 80s. Maybe this is a situation where at least at the beginning, a year or two or three, that maybe he will go ahead and step back and let Rivera see what he can do about improving the win percentage in others of the team. And maybe that involves the first big test being, you know what, I, don't, I didn't draft Dwayne Haskins. You did. I saw Dwayne Haskins. I've talked to Dwayne Haskins. I've seen Dwayne Haskins on film. Dwayne Haskins is not our guy. Dwayne Haskins doesn't fit what I want to do. Dwayne Haskins is not going to be better than Tua Tungavailoa. We think Tungavailoa is going to be the guy that could be a Hall of Fame talent, that can be a Hall of Fame quarterback, that could be a Super Bowl winning talent. Do you want to be the Chicago Bears and do what they did in terms of passing on such guys as Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson? I think not. I think not. We got a guy here in Tua Tungabailoa who can accomplish the same type of accolades, the same type of, can have the same type of impact on our team than, say, for instance, a Patrick Mahomes or a Lamar Jackson or a Deshaun Watson had on their teams. Maybe that's the argument that Ron Rivera is giving to Daniel Snyder in terms of this is the reason why I want to pick Tua. If the scenario, if the rumors are true that there is a possibility that it's not a slam dunk, so to speak, it's not a touchdown, so to speak, if I could use that correct cliche concerning the sport that I'm talking about, the fact that, you know what, hey, Chase Young is not just going to be, don't just go on the assumption that Chase Young is going to be drafted by the Washington Rivera Skins. There's some talk about possibly those guys could go with Tua, and I'm giving you the reasons why the uh, Ron Rivera skins would go ahead and draft Tua over Dwayne Haskins. You're speaking about a guy in uh, you know, Tunga Bailoa who threw for almost 4,000 yards, 43 touchdowns, only six interceptions his sophomore year at Alabama in 2018. And then after that, in only nine games, when he was coming in as one of the greatest NFL prospects after his sophomore year, last season he threw for 2,800 yards, 33 touchdowns, three interceptions. He had the fifth most uh, passing yardage in the SEC. He was eighth in the NCAA in passing touchdowns. He's second in the SEC in total touchdowns. And oh, by the way, did I also forget to mention he only played in nine games, missed six of them. So we can see here, based on his accomplishments in college, that, man, Tua Tungabailoa is going to be the man. And when you speak a look at some of the rocky moments, not just of on-the-field situations concerning Dwayne Haskins, but also some of the immaturity that he showed, I mean, Dwayne Haskins, yeah, okay, he completed 58% of his passes for 1,300 yards, seven touchdowns, and center of seven interceptions. And yeah, there was some improvement near the end of the season when you're speaking about games in which he played against the Philadelphia Eagles and the New York Giants. He showed maybe the inkling, maybe the beginning maturation stage of a quarterback who could develop into something. Well, Tua Tungavailoa, by all account and purposes, is a better quarterback prospect coming out of college than Dwayne Haskins, who put up 
just ungodly type numbers when he was playing with Urban Meyer for Ohio State his junior year. So I don't know, man. I don't know. The only thing that concerns me and that concerns everybody, of course, when you're talking about Tua Tungavailoa is the fact that his injuries had nothing to do with the character. He's a high-quality guy. He's a person. He's a natural leader. Everybody, his teammates, the lover, respect him. So the only thing that possibly could derail Tonga Bailoa at the onset from the outside looking in from the surface of him being a great quarterback, productive quarterback, NFL-ready quarterback, the only thing that could stop Tua from accomplishing those feats and those tasks and those responsibilities are injuries. You're speaking about November of 2019. He suffered a posterior wall fracture in a dislocated hip. They even said that really wasn't what you would call a... That, people are sitting up, there, sitting up there talking about that's really not even a um, football injury. That's something that people experience or get when they are in a car accident. So he injured his right ankle a month before that. Now, everybody, the doctors and his physician and everybody was sitting there talking about, well, he's recovered from that injury and Tua is kind of downplay it to say, hey, you know what? You're going to get injured in football. It's a contact sport. What do you want me to do? Play badminton? I don't think so. But because of this coronavirus and because teams has not, have not been able to go ahead and check him out in person, that means that the organization's doctors haven't had an opportunity to take a look at him and some other things. So there is some, there is some, I don't know, stuff going on in terms of if you're an organization, do we, do we really go ahead and take this guy? And then also, again, you take a look at Tua. If Washington drafts him, I mean, he's coming to a team that's dearth on talent. I mean, you have an ageless running back in Adrian Peterson who's not like anything he was when he was in his Minnesota days. I mean, again, you have a lack of talent and depth at the wide receiver position. You have nobody playing tight end. You don't know what's going to be happening on the offensive line. So are you going to put Tua, a guy who's injury prone, into that situation? And again, just like Joe Burrow, who you're speaking about his senior year at LSU, he had a great passing coordinator in Joe Brady. And I would guess in what, 13 or 14 or how many games that they played, what, 65, 70% of them? LSU was clearly the most talented of the teams that they played. Well, take a look at what Tua had going for him, his two years at the quarterback, starting quarterback with the uh, University of Alabama. He had two high first-round picks at the wide receiver position when you're speaking about Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs III, another wide receivers, the other wide receivers, which were Devonta Smith and Jalen Waddle. Many people are considering them to be first-round draft picks in a couple of years. Tight end Irv Smith from last season was a second-round uh, draft pick. His offensive line had first-round talent all around it. When you're speaking about uh, Jonah Williams and Jedrick Willis Jr. and others who were drafted in the first round. So, again, you're speaking about a guy who was surrounded by nothing but talent. He had a NFL caliber running back and Josh Jacobs, who was taken in the first round by the Oakland Raiders, now Las Vegas Raiders last season. And Najee Harris is one of these guys who could be a first-round draft pick if the college football season commences as, as, uh, as scheduled. So, you know, it's a situation where, yeah, you know, Tua put up those marvelous, unbelievable numbers, but look at the talent that he had. How was Tua going to perform when he doesn't have that talent around him? For the first time in his life, he played at a major powerhouse in the Hawaii when he during his high school days. So I don't think he's ever played on a team 
that wasn't superior in talent. How's he going to handle that the first time that he plays in an NFL game with a team that's clearly lacking the talent that the Washington football skins have? Again, he's a great leader. He's a great kid. He's mature. He's all those things, but those things aren't going to protect him. He's getting the hell beat out of him week after week after week. Again, especially a, a guy who, even with all that talent around him, dating back to his high school days, has been injury prone. All of those things for Washington, they have to discuss. And those are some of the things with me being a Washington Snyder Skins, Ron Rivera, no more the, uh, Bruce Allen Skins fan, I'm concerned about if they go ahead and are even thinking about drafting Tua Tunga Vailoa. Now look, Ron Rivera knows a lot more about football than me and knows a lot more about the Washington football team and the players and putting together a really good football team than I'll ever know. So if he wants to go ahead and he feels he sees something in Tua that supersedes drafting Chase Young, all right, as for now, and Ron retrust, but uh, if I'm Washington, I don't go ahead, I don't trade the number two pick, Three really good players or two good players aren't better than one great player. I don't go ahead and draft myself a quarterback at number two. I don't know about Tua. If, if Tua has slid down, say, for instance, if some miracle happens or something nutty happens and Tua becomes an Aaron Rodgers type where he keeps dropping and dropping and dropping or he becomes a Randy Moss type in the NFL draft in 98 where he kept dropping and dropping and dropping, Okay, maybe if I'm a team that's drafting in the late teens or early 20s, well, then, yeah, I would do something. Or if a two was still there at 15 or 14 and I'm sitting there, I'm the New England Patriots, yeah, I'd move heaven and earth to move up to try to get uh, two up. But if I'm Washington, yeah, if I'm going to be drafting a quarterback at number two, I'm not going to be drafting Jordan Love or Justin Herbert. It would have to be Tua Tungavailoa. But again, with his injury history, ain't touching it. So, which leads me to the most logical thing the Washington, D.C. Skins can do. Go ahead and draft yourself the best player in the draft, regardless of position, and Chase Young. Draft Chase Young. Draft Chase Young. Draft Chase Young. That should be the chant. That should be the plea. That should be the thing that the Washington football Skins fans should be saying. Uh, the most the most excited I was for the 2019 NFL season last uh, year was when the New York Giants, was it New York Giants or Philadelphia Eagles? I forget which, which one, but it was a late season game. I think it was the New York Giants. When the Giants scored a late touchdown at, the, at, the, um, at FedEx Field to beat Washington, I was so happy because that cleared the way, regardless of what happened for the rest of the year. It cleared the way for Washington to be in the number two position. You knew Cincinnati was going to be drafting a quarterback. Washington with number two, at the number two pick, they were in a position to draft the best player on the board, the best player coming into this draft, Chase Young. And if you're the Washington football team, that's exactly what you do. Look, man, the Washington Foolskins were 3-13 and 13 last year. Their fans revolted. In terms of no one came out to FedEx Field to watch them play. They were sick and tired and fed up of the bullshit, pathetic product that was being placed on the field. We are talking about Washington, D.C. We are talking about the Washington metropolitan area. We're saying, fuck the, fuck the Washington fool skins. Screw Daniel Snyder. 
sell the team, all of that nonsense. It was almost like James Dolan situation with the New York Knicks in terms of the disgust, in terms of, I don't want to use the word hatred, hatred's a little bit strong, but just the disgust that the Washington football team fans had for Daniel Snyder. We were sick and tired of this pathetic, sorry-ass product being put on our field in front of our eyes week after week, season after season, decade after decade. Enough! It took 20-something years, but those fans in D.C. had finally said enough. Let the other team's fans come in there and cheer and take over our stadium. We don't care. Now, unfortunately, the basketball team sucked so much that they couldn't take advantage of the vacuum that could have, that, that happened with the ineptitude of the football team, the baseball team did. But clearly, the Washington football team is part of our fabric in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And for the first time in my 51 years of living on this earth and knowing about this football team, those fans said, fuck you to Daniel Snyder in that team. We are not showing up. So when you're in a situation like this, don't get cute. Don't outthink yourself. You go ahead and you draft the best player available. I don't care who it is, regardless of need, regardless of weakness on your football team. When you're in a situation like this, you draft the best football player available, period. And with the number two pick in the position that the Washington football skins are in, you go ahead and you draft Chase Young. Draft Chase Young and try to do something that the San Francisco 49ers did in terms of building a strong rotation as far as rushing the passer in that defensive line. You saw that that enabled the San Francisco 49ers to get to the Super Bowl and were one quarter away from winning the Super Bowl with a strong defense like that. You saw the turnaround that the San Francisco 49ers had going from 3-13 to to being in the Super Bowl. We saw all those things. So if you're in the Washington football skins, go ahead and you do the same thing. Draft Chase Young and hope that he had the same type of impact on that front four and on that defense that Nick Bosa had on the front four in the defense of the San Francisco 49ers. You're speaking about it. You're thinking about Washington. You're speaking about potential pass rushers and rotation front four guys in D.C. Jonathan Allen, Darren Payne, Montez Sweat, Ryan Kerrigan, Chase Young. Yes, 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 yes especially when you're speaking about Jonathan Young only being 25 years old, first-round draft pick. You're speaking about Deron Payne, 23 years old, first-round draft pick. When you're speaking about Montez Sweat, 23 years old, number one draft pick in the 2019 draft, you're building, you're building, you're building, you're building, and you're building with youth. You're building through the draft. You're doing it with an off, a defensive guy like Ron Rivera and a defensive coordinator who should be in improvement from the last couple of seasons in Jack Del Rio. Draft Chase Young. Build that defense. Ron Rivera is a defensive guy. You build, you improve, you begin the improvement on your team through the defense. If you're in that situation, if you're if you're Washington, the best player available is Chase Young. He plays defense. Thank you, Jesus. You go ahead and you get him and you start building your football team that way. I always say build your team from the Inside out, which means is for me, if I'm starting a football team, I'm doing what I can. When I, you need the franchise quarterback, no doubt about it. But almost as important as the franchise quarterback, you need either an offensive or defensive line. I don't give a damn how great your 
quarterback is, if you don't have anybody to protect them, that quarterback is going to be in some real fucking trouble. Just ask Andrew Luck right now who was supposed to go down as one of the greatest, who was supposed to be in that pantheon, who was supposed to be the next in terms of him being a great quarterback. Ask him at age 29 or 30 what he's doing right now. Ask him the fact that he still wants to play football. Unfortunately, he can't because of injuries, because of the beatdown that a poorest offensive line that was built around him. Ask the Indianapolis Colts how many Super Bowls did they win. Ask how many records did uh, Andrew Luck have. Zero. You know why? Because that offensive line that was built around them was garbage. So no matter how great Andrew Luck was, long term, it didn't work out. If I'm building a football team, I'm starting with my offensive line, defensive line, and then I'm building up. Then I go ahead and start working on the tight ends. Then I start working. If I'm doing that from an offensive standpoint, if I'm an offensive coach, yeah, I get myself a quarterback who can run my system. He doesn't have to be, uh, he doesn't have to be a Patrick Mahomes type talent. He doesn't have to have uh, Peyton Manning or something like that. He doesn't have to be a franchise Hall of Fame type quarterback. For me, get me a quarterback who can run my system and then get me a strong offensive line if I'm going to be gearing, building my team for offense first. Give me a strong offensive line, then give me a running back, then give me a tight end, and then give me wide receivers to place around my really good quarterback. If I'm building from the defense first philosophy, Get, I don't care about linebackers. I don't care about safeties. I don't care about cornerbacks. Give me three or four defensive linemen who can rush the quarterback. Give me a six or seven man defensive line rotation with three or four of those guys being elite pass rushers because I need to put pressure on that quarterback time and time and time again because I don't care if you had Dick Knight train lane I don't care if you had Rod Woodson I don't care if you had Deion Sanders I don't care if you had Darrell Rivas I don't care name any great quarterback that you have if you have a defensive line that can't get to the quarterback I don't give a damn how great you are as a quarterback hall of fame all of all-time great Daryl Green type you are not going to be able to be successful same thing with the uh, safety position you're the Washington football team. You draft Chase Young. You put him on that offensive, uh, that defensive line, and you say, go get the quarterback. Go get the quarterback. And in going to get the quarterback, you might happen to run into a running back with the ball in his hands. Tackle him. Other than that, focus on getting the quarterback. And I think Washington right now is in the has the potential Again, with the coach and the defensive coordinator coach that they have and that front four, the potential that they have, something could be brewing in terms of starting to turn things around in Washington, D.C. concerning his football team. You have a safety in Landon Collins who's really good, and you can build that way. Start building that way. So, yeah, my suggestion, I'm not a scout. I'm not a football operation guy. I'm not any of that. Go ahead. Get yourself Chase Young the best football player, the guy with the highest ceiling, get him, get him. Don't trade out of that draft pick. Don't go ahead and get yourself a quarterback who's injury prone. Don't do any of those things. Do the smart thing. Do the right thing. Get yourself the best football player available at the number two position, at the number two draft pick for the Washington Snyderskins. That player, without question, without doubt, without argument, without any type of argument to be had, that player is Chase Young.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on that I want to talk about. You know, one of the things, because we don't have sports on anymore and I don't have the opportunity to watch the NBA or some Major League Baseball or missing UFC 249. Oh, I'm going to get to that in the last segment. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get to that. But, um... The reason, you know, one of the things about me not being able to watch any sports is I've had the opportunity now to kind of watch some shows that I normally wouldn't watch and find some find some channels that normally I wouldn't be watching because I'm so inundated in the sports and ESPN and TNT with the NBA games and yeah, all these other things, right? So I come across Investigative Discovery Channel, Okay. This is a show mainly about crime and punishment. Now, you might not know this because I only say this every fucking show, but uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a big crime and punishment guy. You didn't know that, did you? Yeah, about that, yeah. I'm a big crime and punishment guy. So, you know, Bill Curtis is one of my heroes. Love myself and Bill Curtis when he had American Justice and Cold Case Files and investigative reports. I mean, I grew up on that stuff. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Still do, still do. Still do. You ask me anything about them cold case files, man, because on Pluto TV, you can go ahead and take a look at the cold case files. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember all of them. And I still watch them. And I still enjoy them. And I just love it. I can't help it. If I wasn't into sports, I would be. I would love to be a criminal profiler. That would be awesome. Lori Hazelwood and John Douglas, them boys. But um, one of the things that I saw, one of the things that I found is this investigative discovery channel. And it's got uh, some pretty good stuff on it. Mainly it's about murder and all this kind of stuff, right? So one of the shows that I found uh, was, and it comes on today, today being Tuesday, or every Tuesday, I guess, is Deadly Women. Uh, and it talks about these cases where these women lose their mind, or they talk about these women who commit murder. And basically most of the most of the women who do this that are being portrayed on these shows is, you know, they're with a boyfriend and they can't have the boyfriend or they're with the husband and the husband cheats or the husband does something else or the husband gets on their nerves or whatever. And the women and the woman gets fed up and she's driven to madness and she loses her mind and she takes a gun and she shoots the guy or she stabs the, or the, the boyfriend that she's with breaks up with her and, and she starts stalking him, and they, and he sees her with another woman, and she goes nuts, and so she kills the girlfriend, and sometimes kills the boyfriend with him, and all these type of stuff, you know, stuff that I find uh, intimately attractive, intimately uh, uh, interesting. I say to myself, you know, me being the age that I am, with the probability that I'm never going to have kids, and you know, the fact that, you know, when I'm single right now, no prospects, really not looking for any, really not even having an, oppor having an opportunity to find anybody because, I mean, you can't meet anybody, right? Really, you can't do that right now as far as with this pandemic going around. So, you know, I ain't hooking up with anybody because how do I know they're not COVID-19? How do I know I'm not, I don't have the virus and pass it on. So, you know, as of the time being right now, I'm not looking for anybody. I mean, you know, maybe when this is over, if you're, 37 and you're really attractive and you like sports and you, you know, like people with an eyeball personality who like to talk a lot and everything like that. I'm available. I mean, you know, I do got them, you know, I have been, you know, kind of uh, mistaken for like a younger Denzel Washington's distant cousin or maybe a, uh, you know, fourth cousin removed uh, relative of Will Smith. 
in terms of my attractiveness. Yeah, yeah. But 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 seriously, it's like I, I look at those programs, and I'll get back to sports in just a minute. I just want to get this off my chest for you. I appreciate it. I take a look at these shows, and it's like you know what? I am going to start DVRing these shows, and when there comes a time in these few moments where I sit there and I say to myself, "Man, you know, I really miss." You know, I, I, I wish I was in a relationship and I'm kind of lonely and I'm kind of single and, you know, the having a woman with me right now and all the advantages of having a woman both emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically and all those things, all of these wonderful things that come with having a female in terms of uh, being in a relationship. Whenever I get to that moment and I start feeling a little bit sad or I start feeling a little bit down, I'm going to binge watch deadly women and that'll snap me out of it then i'll be like hey you know what being single being all alone it ain't that bad it's a lot easier it's a lot healthier you know what i'm feeling kind of good <laughs> i mean except for the physical part and i can go down to tropicana and uh, i can go down to the wild wild west area in tropicana if i'm really that badly looking for something and you know get 40, 60, 100 bucks and take care of that urge that way if I really if I really wanted to, if it really came down to something like that. I'd rather do that than get with some nutball who's going to end my life because he gets all jealous because of my movie star good looks, my sparkling personality, my greatness, and I decide that I want to move on to something else. And then I get some wild chick who might be good in bed and we might have our fun together for a few months or a few days or whatever, and all of a sudden she starts throwing bricks through my window. All of a sudden she starts harassing me at work. All of a sudden she starts following me following me everywhere I go. Woo, no, nah, man, let me take my $100 out of the ATM, go down to uh, Tropicana, find myself someone who's going to take it. He's going to take care of my uh, uh, physical needs for about a half an hour or so. I did say a half an hour, ladies. Ladies, A half an hour or so, then come back and be like, whoa, still safe, still still functioning. I know we got some crazy bitch up there trying to do some crazy stuff to me. Investigative, investigative discovery. Deadly women. Ooh, man, bitches are crazy. But yet, I also know that men are dogs and they're possessive and their jealousy is outrageous and everything like that. So it's just a different degree of crazy. Men and women have different degrees of crazy. You know, I always said, I'm going to get back to sports, man. Would you just calm down? Can I get this last thing out of me before I get back to sports? Thank you. Jeez. The thing was that when people used to ask me, because, you know, when I substitute teach, I substitute all over. I do the schools in the inner city. I do the continuation schools. I do the schools way out in the sticks. I do the schools, you know, way out there. So people always ask me, you know, especially when I do a certain school, pretty nice area of town. They always go, hey, yeah, I know our school. I know our kids a lot better than the ones you go substitute. And you're down there in the, uh, you know, down there on the north side of town, huh, huh, huh? And I always say, well, I mean, let's put it this way. First of all, if you can take the language of the kids in the north side of town, the quote unquote challenging schools, if you can if you can take some of the language that they say, it's not really that bad. I mean, who cares? I mean, ain't nobody throwing deaths, ain't nobody lighting blunts, ain't nobody shooting anybody, ain't nobody getting into fights, you know, on the north side. All of the stereotypes that you might equate with a quote unquote challenging school in a uh, challenging area, shall we say, it's not really that bad. I've never really had any trouble, but I always say this, you know, it's like the kids from those types of schools, they're 
those who get on my nerves or those who I just like shake my head and just like, man, man, you're a fucking loser, man. Good Lord have mercy. I mean, their degrees, their examples of being annoying are a lot different than those, say, in the best schools with the best kids from the best neighborhoods and all this kind of stuff. I mean, those, those schools have losers and jackasses and clowns also. No different than what you see in the inner city schools or what you see in the schools in the challenging areas. It's just different degrees of stupidity. I mean, the way they act stupid is different than the way that the kids in the challenging schools act stupid. But it's still annoying. I mean, it's not like the kids in the challenging schools, they're annoying, gets on my nerves, but yet in the... All right, let's, let's, let me go there. Them kids in the high suburbs, the rich area, white schools, it's not like those kids' stupidity is like, oh, yeah, I can take this. Hey, no big deal. Hey, this is cool for me because, after all, their parents are rich and they're in a really good school and they make good grades and this, that, and the other. No, no, an, an annoying kid isn't an annoying kid. There's just difference of, there's just different ways of them being annoying. Just like a really good kid. A really good kid in the inner city school and a really good kid in a rich white area, it's about the same. It's about the same. A good kid's a great kid. I don't sit there and be like, oh man, you know, for being an inner city kid, you know, he's really great, but he's still an asshole. No, I mean, you put a really great kid in an inner city and to the white schools in a rich area and affluent and everything, he would still be a great kid. He would be just as great as uh, the rest of those kids. He would be just as smart and just as a pleasure to have in class. And if you took an asshole from the rich white suburban, affluent area, you take them down to North Las Vegas or you take them over down to the inner city schools and put them in the same group of people, he would still be an asshole. He would still get on my nerves. He would still be someone who I wish would just drop out of school and I would never have to see again. I mean, it doesn't make, doesn't make any difference. So, well, men and women, I don't even know how do I get on to this, by the way. You know, I don't know. It's just, I miss school. I miss substituting. I really do. I miss the paycheck. I miss the kids. I miss having something to do. I just miss it. Wendell World. <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So glad that now I'm going to be getting back to sports, huh? Real quick, I just want to go over some of the latest rumors concerning um, this NFL draft. Now, this is from Peter King of NBC Sports. Peter King is one of the best in the biz. He knows his stuff. But uh, you know how I was talking about the Cincinnati Bengals? In the last uh, couple of uh, segments before where Joe Burrow's the band and he's going to be drafted by the Bengals and this, that, and the other. Well, Peter King from NBC Sports, he said that Joe Burrow may not be the consensus pick among the uh, Cincinnati Bengals front, uh, uh, front office. He said those in the organization think that Justin Herbert is a better quarterback and that Miami, the Miami Dolphins are still reportedly very enamored with Joe Burrow and have indicated that they would be more comfortable selecting him over other quarterbacks like Tua Tungabailoa or Justin Herbert or Jordan Love out of Utah State. Now, you know, again, I mentioned before with the Washington Snyderskins, the Dolphins could offer Cincinnati um, their three first-round picks, number five, number 18, number 26, the two second-round picks they have at number 39, and number 56, they have one pick in the third and fourth round, and then they have three picks in the fifth round. Again, the Dolphins have 14 draft picks that they could offer to any team in terms of them looking to move up. Speaking about the team needs for the Dolphins, they need a quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick, no. Josh Rosen, no. You're talking about an offensive line that needs some help. You're talking about the safety position that needs help. So 
If you're the Dolphins, what do you do? Do you just go ahead and do you just throw everything? Do you try to do what the New Orleans Saints did in terms of them moving up to draft Ricky Williams when basically Mike Ditka, his first year as the coach and running things, he basically gave the, who did he give the entire draft pick to? I forgot, but I forgot the team that he was negotiating with. But basically he gave them all of their, all of his draft picks for Ricky Williams. And we saw how that turned out. Guy being on Sports Illustrated in a dress. All right. All right. That's some confidence in yourself right there to be doing some nonsense like that. But I forgot New Day. So, hey, you know what? What the heck? But, you know, there's been situations like that in sports where a team is so desperate for a guy who they think is going to be the man that they offer ridiculous amounts of uh, draft capital for him. I mean, you take a look at the Minnesota Vikings, what Mike Lynn, the GM of the time, for the money that Minnesota Vikings did and what they gave Jimmy Johnson and Dallas Cowboys for uh, Herschel Walker, basically set up the Cowboys for being one of the elite teams of the 1990s and set Jimmy Johnson, basically cemented Jimmy Johnson's place in terms of him being in the Hall of Fame with that draft selection or with, the, with that um, acquisition that was made as far as Dallas getting those draft picks from Minnesota. So with Miami, it's kind of like, well, do you go ahead and you do something like that to try to get themselves to a tongue of Iloa? I mean, or excuse me, get themselves a um, Joe Burrow? I just don't think Joe Burrow is that prospect, man. I mean, I think if you were someone like an Andrew Luck or if you were someone like one of those, I think next season, if Trevor Lawrence of Clemson to continue to develop, number one, if the college football season starts on time and everything moves up and is supposed to be doing what they need to be doing as far as Trevor Lawrence and his maturation to a quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, to me, is a guy to where if I'm the Miami Dolphins, unfortunately, is there any way that we can kind of like freeze these assets for the 2021 draft? Because, yeah, Trevor Lawrence, I think, is worth, if I have to give up, give up three first-round draft picks to get that guy, i do it. That's how good I think Trevor Lawrence is as a quarterback as far as his potential is concerned. I would give up three first-round picks in a couple of, uh, of, of uh, give up one pick maybe in the second and one in the third and one in the fourth. I mean, basically, I would go overboard to try to get me someone like a Trevor Lawrence. But for Joe Burrow, I, I don't know if I'm the Dolphins. I don't know if I, I don't know if I do that, man. I, I just go ahead and, use as many draft picks as I can. I mean, maybe it's a situation, because I think Brian Flores as a coach, I, don't, I think the way that team is going to be moving and grooving, despite the fact that they don't have a, a starting quarterback, I think they're in a position where they're not going to be bad enough to where they're going to stay and they can tank for Trevor Lawrence. They're not going to lose for Lawrence. You understand what I'm saying? So if I'm the Dolphins, I mean, I just go ahead and I just use all of those draft picks to improve my team as much as possible. And the Dolphins, they're not good enough, again, I think, for them to be giving all of their picks away or giving a majority of their picks or making a quote-unquote big deal in terms of acquiring someone like a Joe Burrow. I don't think Joe Burrow is that quarterback. I just I just don't. So if I'm the Dolphins, I've got three first-round picks. i got two second-round picks. i got a third and a fourth. Heck, yeah, man, that's just me ample opportunity if i'm a gm also if i'm a gm of a team isn't it a gm's dream to have that many picks to to work with i mean you only want to have what you want to give away three or four picks and maybe some future picks to try to get this quarterback if you're a gm doesn't your ego say no man give me the opportunity we've got 14 picks okay let me at least use 10 of them 
Let me use all of the three first round picks. Let me use one of my third, second round picks and a couple of my uh, uh, other picks. Let me go ahead and just see what I can do with that. Because if you're a general manager and you make it to the level of being an NFL general manager, if you're in a position to where you have the ability to make these choices, obviously you got there because of your belief in yourself to reach the highest level that you have. No different than a professional athlete who's made it to the highest level, who's now a starting quarterback or starting free safety or something like that, or, or an NFL football coach. You have to have some ego. You have to have the confidence in yourself. So if you're a GM, aren't you in that same position to say, you know, I'm, I'm good enough to where if you give me 14 picks and you give me five picks in the first two rounds, hell yeah, I'm going to put together a great team. Don't be trading four of them. Give me all of them. Because I'll have the ability to go ahead and build a great team around them. So if I'm the Dolphins, I don't, I don't, I might be enamored with Joe Burrow and all those things, but I, I draft, I draft. I believe in the coaching, Brian Flores, the coach. I believe in Stephen Ross, and might, he might be a fan of the president of the United States right now. But that, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't think that he's an owner that can go ahead and. I think that he could, you know, he could build a championship team. And by the way, how about that? He's also a guy who also hired a, a blackhead football coach when his other uh, uh, homeboys were out there hiring nothing but whitehead coaches. So I give Stephen Roth the ability to buck the trend and hire the best coach available. You just happen to be black. So I applaud Stephen Roth for that. But still, I mean, I think that Miami Dolphins as an organization is in a good enough place with the inf- infrastructure that they have that if I'm a GM, yeah, I go ahead and I say, you know, I don't, don't go ahead and, and throw away a lot of those picks to get one guy. Let me see what I can do as far as putting a team together, working with the coach and, and others about putting a team that can be competing with the draft picks that I had. Let me go ahead and do what Jimmy Johnson did with the Dallas Cowboys with all the draft capital that he got from the trade of Herschel Walker with the Minnesota Vikings, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad you could be with us. And as I mentioned before, I'm going to go to break. You know, with the Cincinnati Bengals, how much should we... There's so much going on in drafts where it's almost like, you know, nonsense in terms of trying to maneuver, trying to throw rumors out there, trying to see what we can do to maybe get a little bit more leverage. Let me see what I can do about dipping my toe into the water by spreading this rumor or bringing this or bringing this prospect in, or, I mean, you know, Washington did that in terms of, I mean, how much, when Ron Rivera is talking about uh, Tua Tunga Bailoa and maybe saying that, hey, you know what, Dwayne Haskins is, is going to have to be a guy that's going to have to show me. He's not going to be given the starting position. I'm, I don't know anything about him. You know, he's going to have to prove to me that he's the guy to be the starting quarterback for this football team. He's going to have to prove it to me. He's not going to have to prove it to Daniel Snyder. He's going to have to prove it to me. How much is that in terms of, I'm quite sure there's validity behind that, but how much is that also to where maybe he can plant that seed into the Los Angeles Chargers head, the Miami Dolphins head, maybe someone with a lot of draft capital that will maybe come up and say, hey, you know what, if you guys are really this, that, and the other, maybe we could swing a deal, or maybe we could do some talking, or maybe... 
you know, what, what, what's up? What's going on? What's happening? I see that you had this prospect there. What's, what's going on here? Are you guys thinking about doing this? Maybe there's something maybe we can do to make it more enticing for you to take our deal than for you to take Tua or somebody else. I mean, there's so much games and shenanigans going on when you're speaking about the NFL draft with these rumors. A lot of time, I mean, how do we know? Mike Brown's like, yeah, throw that shit out there. Throw the shit out there that, you know what, we're more enamored or there's a lot of those in the organization that prefer Justin Herbert to Joe Burrow, throw that out there and see what we get. You know, throw that out there in the pond and see what type of ripples come back. So who knows, man? It could be just bullshit. It could be just, you know, paying attention to detail, going over everything, no stone left unturned, any other cliche you want to use concerning that. But I, I think when all the dust is cleared and all the smoke is cleared, if I could use another cliche, I'm just a cliche and some of a bitch today, ain't I? But if I could just... You know, I think when everything is all said and done and Roger Goodell is sitting in his multi-mansion basement home <laughs> up there in, uh, you know, Richfield or up there in Richville, New York. And when I say Richfield, that's not an actual town. That's like where, you know, where Roger Goodell lives, rich folks live there. So that's why that's why I call it Richville. So when he's sitting, sitting up there in Richville, USA, in his basement, and he's up there calling the draft picks, I guess he's not going to have the ability to bear hug these guys anymore, at least for this season, huh? I wonder if they would just have, you know what the, the NFL should do? They should have like, like pictures or like, you know, full size pictures or something of each one of the draft picks. Joe Burrow, it should be like, look, like the invitees who would normally go to the draft, who get to be drafted. They should have like dolls or something or life-size mannequins or something like that made. So when Roger Goodell says the name with the number one pick in the NFL draft, the Cincinnati Bengals select Joe Burrow, quarterback, LSU. What he can do as soon as, and they can keep the camera on him, as soon as he says the name, he goes over to the mannequin that looks like Joe Burrow. He'll have the LSU jersey on. He goes over to the mannequin and he just gives him a big bear hug. Wouldn't that be something? I mean, for each one. Just gives him a big bear hug and kind of keeps with tradition, huh? David Stern, when he used to do the NBA draft, I mean, he would kind of do the heel WWE wrestling character in terms of being the guy that people like to boo and everything. And, of course, we have in the NFL draft, we have characters come in at the later rounds to keep it fresh and to keep it interesting, to keep people still viewing the NFL draft. So there's always been some type of tradition when you talk about these drafts that are being, that are being televised, mainly the NBA and the, um, and, major, you know, and the National Football League. To where even though, mainly speaking about the NFL, because it's going to be happening in about 10 days, maybe there's a way, well, it's going to be happening in oh, nine days. So maybe there's a way to where we can somehow, some way, keep that tradition alive. And of course, maybe, you know, for the next pick, we can go over to, let's say, for instance, you know what, for the Dallas Cowboys pick in the fifth or sixth round, I mean, maybe we can set something up with Drew Pearson at Drew Pearson's home, maybe in his backyard or something like that, where he can announce, or Roger, you know, they can announce who the Cowboys drafted, and he can go ahead and do a, do a spiel there. You know, talking about the greatest team in the world, not those idiot Philadelphia Eagle fans, America team. I mean, you know how Drew was getting into all of that. I don't know if he's still bitter with the NFL about not being inducted into the Hall of Fame, that tearful, bitter rambling speech that he gave speaking of rambling i know something about rambling but that speech he gave when he didn't get elected into the hall of fame you can see how bitter and disappointed appointment that he was 
I mean, maybe he said, fuck the NFL, I ain't doing that bullshit no more. But if he is, that would be awesome. And that would be great. But tradition should still, there should still be some type of tradition as far as the NFL draft is concerned. But, as I mentioned before, and as we get closer to the draft, I know we're only 10 days away, but maybe we'll talk about what the Detroit Lions or there's any other news coming out in terms of what's going to be happening in the draft. Maybe we'll get to it. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff we're talking about, what should the Miami Dolphins do? What are they offering? I mean, there might be there might be some in the organization that Cincinnati might be cooling on Joe Burrow, and the Dolphins seem to be enamored. And hey, you know, and the other day at lunch, I overheard Ron Rivera talking about Tua Tungavailoa is a nice guy. Hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> I mean, all of this type of nonsense. When everything is all said and done, I think it's just smoke. And I think at least as far as the first two or three or four, even five picks are concerned until the Dolphins decide what they want to do. I think the NFL draft, this season at least, is going to go straight to form. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The NBA executives and team medical personnel have been discussing possible protocols to get players ready for games whenever they could be staged. Oh, here we go again. This is first reported by ESPN Brian Windhorst. He appeared on the um, Sports Center Sunday show. And, of course, the NBA hasn't given up hope yet. Now, there hasn't been anything concrete in terms of what direction they're going to be going until the end of the month. That's what, what Aunt Adam Silver said, that he'll come out and take a look and see which way the wind is blowing and what's going to be happening. And I'm quite sure he's talking to health professionals and he's talking to the players' union presidents. And I'm quite sure that he's talking to the owners and other folks and to see exactly what's going to be happening, where they're going to go. They've already had this horse situation. I don't want to see these guys play horse. I want to see these guys play basketball games. Other than that, you know what I would love to see these guys do? And of course they can't do it now because of the social distancing and the social gathering is, man, maybe when some of this is over and maybe you can have at least 10 or 11 or 12 people, somebody should, you know, these guys, when they start playing down at the UCLA in the summer, where you have the Drew League sometimes or where you have some of these other things, Man, take a camera in there, man. Let's see some five-on-five pickup games where you have, like, LeBron James. All them guys who live out in L.A. Where you have LeBron James and James Harden and Russell Westbrook and Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet and, and Kevin Love who lives out there and all these guys who, during the summer, they get together and they just play. They go down to UCLA on the campus and they play. I mean, Kobe Bryant used to play down there when he was playing. And Magic Johnson would go down there. And Mark Aguirre and Isaiah Thomas, when they were playing, would go down there. It's almost like, you know, during the summertime, these guys, 
when you have the, there was a wreck uh, place in Houston, a fun, I think it's Fondue or something like that, where Akeem Olajuwon would go ahead against Moses Malone. And then you had the Rucker League where you had guys like Kobe and others would stop by and play at the Rucker League over in Harlem in New York. And there's other places where people would get together. Uh, the NBA players would get together throughout the summer and they would play. Kevin Durant would go down to a park over in, uh, I believe it was Northeast D.C., Sometime and for a um, summer league game, and he would drop 80 and then leave, <laughs> that type of thing. But, you know, it would be great for the neighborhood. It would be great for everybody. But I would just love to see possibly these guys. I think Kevin Durant on the offseason lives out in L.A. He didn't get a chance to play any pickup games last offseason or last summer, obviously because he tore his Achilles. But um, I would just love to see if the NBA truly is going to be shut down for the season. The fact that one idea that they can have instead of playing horse is the fact that, man, let's just get together and have like two-on-two or a one-on-one or maybe, you ever, when you were a kid, you played that game of 21 where you would go ahead and, you know, you'd shoot the foul shot. And if you missed the foul shot, you would get the rebound, bring it back to the foul line or to the three-point line, and you tried to score on the guy. And if you scored, it would be two points. And then you go to the three free throw line and shoot three free throws, and they would be one point each, and the first person who got to 21 would win. I mean, I would love to see a situation where you would have a Chris Paul and a LeBron James and a James Harden and a Russell Westbrook get together and play those type of games or something like that or or two-on-two or just something like that. I don't know, man. Throw some money in the pot or something like that and go ahead and play. If the NBA truly is going to be canceled, I mean, something like that. I've always said that would be great for the All-Star game. Instead of having the skills competition, if you really want to spice up the All-Star game and save the dunk contest to uh, in, in in concert with it, have those guys play one-on-one or two-on-one or something like that or 21 or something like that. Have those guys play against each other. That would be fun. That would be exciting. I wouldn't mind seeing that if the NBA is going to be canceled for the rest of the season. But the... But the game of horse, I guess you also have to bring in the women there, so you have to, you know, for the NBA you have to bring in the women, you know, have to showcase the WNBA too, so okay, whatever, but uh, I would much rather have, if you're going to try to have some alternative programming, other than not being able to play the games or televise the NBA games because they've been cancelled is somewhere down the summer I don't know, even, man, just just I don't know, maybe just film LeBron working out or going through his reps or something like that. I mean, for me, that would be cool also to see how these guys work out and this, that, and the other. A day of following or a couple of days of following LeBron or following KD or following somebody to just see these guys work out and do what they do. That, to me, would also be very interesting. But, 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 getting back. So, all of that point was to be made because the NBA is still trying to figure out exactly what they're going to do. Now, as I mentioned before, reported by ESPN, Brian Windhorst, is one idea that they have is to have a 25-day program for players to go through before the games resume in terms of it's like, okay, if it's cool that those guys can get together and play, then the idea would be instead of rushing right back into it and, and having those guys play would be like, let's just have 25 days for these guys to get into some type of game shape and then they come back and they play. So the basics of the plan would be 14 days for individual workouts with social distancing measures in place and 14 days for team training camps before a return to games. So you're speaking about mainly around 28 games in a, or a month. So 
the idea, again, would be for players, they would need more than two weeks to get back into some type of playing shape and then to go ahead and get back together as a group to go over plays and defensive strategy and what their philosophy is and just have a refresher to get them ready for a season, win sprints, and everything like that. So one of the things is that these guys haven't played any basketball, an NBA basketball game, since March 11th or March 12th, March 13th. It's the timeline of when the NBA finally shut down. So we're speaking about you know over a month of players not being able to play. And not only that, most of these players have been self-quarantining themselves. So they've been unable to properly train. So many people would think that, hey, well, you know what, with the extra time already, I mean, we've seen players miss time before in the NBA. We see players, you know, miss a month or so and playing in the NBA and they come right back and they start playing with the big fucking deal. Well, the problem is the fact that these guys have been not been doing anything at all in terms of being able to play. I mean, these guys might not have access to a gym or these guys might be sitting there with their kids or their wives or doing those type of things. And we're speaking about a situation where they're, they're not going out and they don't have the opportunity to go ahead and work with their trainers. They don't go ahead. They don't have the opportunity to go down to the facilities and work out. They don't have the opportunity to do those things that a player would do when he's rehabbing or a player will do if he's on an off-season workout program. A lot different in this situation. So the common concern amongst the owners and even the players is the fact that, you know, well, if we go ahead and after 28 days, after this long layoff of mainly inactivity for a lot of our players, and then we get back into the intensity of the NBA regular season with the playoffs right around the corner because there would only be somewhere between 13 and 16 games left to go in the season, and then we go from that to going into the intensity of the NBA playoffs. I don't know if really that is a good idea. And, of course, again, there hasn't been a venue in terms of where would these guys play the games, what city, is it going to be the same situation as them being in Vegas and playing at the T-Mobile Arena and all these other situations, and if they're going to still be able if they're still thinking about that, then you would also have to put into context the terms of, as of right now, the strip is closed. Vegas is shut down. The casinos, bars, hotels, restaurants, all that stuff is closed. So even if you can have the players in the MGM Grand, I mean, you would have to have hotel personnel in there. You would have to have uh, people to drive them to the games. How about the, how about the referees? How about the folks who are going to be covering the games? I mean, all of these situations, the folks who work at the arena, I mean, you would have to make sure, are they again, would they be sequestered also? So it's, it's a nice idea. A lot of these ideas to get back, they sound pretty good. If it was just the, it was, if it was just the players and the coaches, if it was just that, then yeah, maybe it would be more doable. But again, you have to take into account the other folks, you'd have to take a look at team personnel. You would have to take into account where are they going to be staying. You would have to take into account so many other things that every time I read these reports, they're really not discussing. Again, these 28 days to finally get ready. And again, where would they play the games? Where, those players right now, I mean, maybe, I don't know where Luka Doncic is. I don't, I don't know where any other of these, I don't know where any other of these international basketball players are right now. But if they're, in their hometown or they're in their country right now. I mean, how are they going to get out of their country to come back to uh, the United States and play all of these things that we talk about the referees. I mean, what about this? Everybody's going to agree to this. I don't know. I don't know. And, and, and the whole thing is always like, well, you know, it's better than not getting paid. Well, is it really? 
I mean, does LeBron James, I mean, we all need the money regardless of how much money you're making, but is it really going to break LeBron James or James Harden or John Wall or Bradley Beal or any of these other guys who are making 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 million dollars who also have other revenue streams coming in? Is it really going to hurt those guys to the point where they're going to go ahead and agree to do this financially? I don't know. I don't know. And then after the 13 or 16 games, whatever, if they restart the season again in the NBA, as I mentioned before, then we're going to be start talking about, okay, well, what about the playoffs? What's that, what, what is that going to look like? Could there be an abbreviated 18 playoff with the best of three series instead of the best you know, four out of seven? Are we going to have a situation where they're going to have some a single elimination like the NCAA tournament does where you're going to have the Lakers, the number one seed in the West, and the Milwaukee Bucks, the number one seed in the Midwest, and the Miami Heat, the number one seed in the in the South, and the Denver Nuggets, the number one seed in the the number one seed in the West, I mean, or in the, in the Midwest, I mean, whatever you call it. What, what's going to be happening there? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. So, really, it's very confusing. I mean, I, I just, you've heard my thoughts and appeal, uh, feelings about this before. Love the NBA. But if it's going to be something like that, Hey, man, we're facing incredibly difficult times, man. We're facing something that doesn't happen once in a generation, maybe. Maybe, maybe in terms of this degree. I mean, yeah, we had the other viruses, and we've had the housing crisis, and we've been on the brink of depression before and all that type of stuff, but it's never been to the degree of the situation that we're going through right now, where we're basically self-quarantined, where we're basically going through these... We've never, we've never been through something like this before, especially with the uncertainty. We don't know. We knew in the housing crisis, we, there was a plan that could be in place to where we could have a pretty decent projection of to where, okay, this is where things can start to get back to normal, or this is where you know we're pretty confident of, of how this is going to go. With this pandemic going on, we have no fucking ideas. Our experts have no fucking ideas. So we don't know. We could be back to running things halfway normal in July or August or September or February of 2021. We don't know. I don't know. I'm begging. I'm hoping. I'm praying for the latter. I'm hoping that everything goes back to normal April 15th. It ain't going to happen. But I can start saying, Lord, please let things get back to normal April 15th. And then that, if that doesn't happen, the 16th. If that doesn't happen, the 17th and the 18th and so on and so forth. But we don't know. So it's kind of hard for the NBA to start trying to put stuff together for a certain date and a certain time when we don't know. And when I say a certain time, we don't know what month. We don't know what year. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. No one knows. So it's just crazy like that, man. Absolutely crazy. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace here. Hello. So glad that you could be with us. What's going on with the Utah Jazz? Donovan McMitchell and Rudy Gobel. Rudy Gobel from France. Bonjour, comment allez-vous? Très bien, merci, et vous-même? Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Not talking football in America. Don't talk about basketball. One of the greatest basketball players, Tony Parker, played for the San Antonio Spurs. He was coached by the great Greg Popovich. What am I, is that French? I don't know. But basically, so Rudy Gobel, and Donovan Mitchell are having um, relationship issues, I guess. It was the original story came out from the Atlantic. 
And basically, the gist of the story was the relationship between Gobert and Mitchell, the two cornerstones, really, of the Utah Jazz. The relationship isn't salvageable. It isn't workable, let's put it that way. The Jazz have already begun working on the Mitchell-Gobert relationship, but sources say Mitchell remains reluctant to fix what might have been broken. Doesn't appear the relationship is salvageable. One source with knowledgeable with knowledge to the situation said uh, the athletic report also adds that Mitchell is not happy about the part Gobert played in the entire saga in terms of him contracting the COVID-19 virus. Uh, there's no way to know if Gobert gave it to Mitchell or if it was the other way around or some other factor. That's something the team tried to make clear to Mitchell. Yeah, that's also in the report that, hey, man, you know, you're up there talking about, well, you know, I'm upset that Gobert gave me the virus. How do you know? You don't know that. You could have had the virus. You, you could have had the virus and gave it to Gobert. How do you know that? So our lack of knowledge concerning this matter, it's kind of, I don't know if Donovan Mitchell wants to go around and talk about, well, he gave me this. Well, and there's also, of course, evidence and People weren't happy because basically Gobert, I don't know if he was listening to Fox News or listening to the fucking idiot that's in the White House right now talk about it's no big deal and it's a hoax or anything like that. So, you know, he was fucking around in terms of touching all of the equipment and he was careless in the locker room, touching players and their belongings. Ha Yeah, coronavirus, no big deal. It's just like the flu. It's all a hoax, this, that, and the other. It's all to make sure that Trump doesn't get reelected. Ha, ha, ha. Too much, that, and the other. So let me touch this and let me breathe on you here and let me touch you there and all this kind of stuff. Well, oops, my bad. The shit was for real. And Donovan Mitchell along with a lot of other players on that team, didn't really appreciate Gobert's ignorance and his lack of caring concerning that. So, you know, that's, that's also the situation, I think. I think it's even more, I think Mitchell is, is not, is more upset the fact of how Gobert was just so laissez-faire, is that a French word? Laissez-faire, about him dealing, about this whole situation with the coronavirus that he would put him and others in danger of this. And I think he, I think that's more, you know, under Mitchell's craw than anything else. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Now, Gobert, just to follow up on the story, there was a, they talked to Gobert and he downplayed the whole riff with Donovan Mitchell saying that they spoke for the first time since, you know, Gobert and Mitchell were, had tested positive. He also said that, you know, they're both on the same page. And in fact, Gobert's quote was, it's not about being unprofessional. You know, everything has got different relationships. It's never perfect. People that are married, it's never perfect. So, you know, me and my teammates is far from perfect. But at the end of the day, we both want the same thing. And that's winning. We're both grown men and we both are going to do what it takes to win. I don't know, man. I mean, number one, if I'm the Utah Jazz, I'm the Utah Jazz, okay? Utah Jazz is not a destination place. It's not a situation where, yeah, we can kind of let, we can kind of trade Gobert or Donovan Mitchell because we know that we're going to be in the sweepstakes for Giannis Adenokupo when he becomes eligible for a contract extension or when he becomes eligible for free agency. Utah is Utah. It ain't the Miami Heat. It ain't the LA Lakers. It's not one of those premier destinations. So if I'm, Utah Jazz, and I see exactly what happened with the San Antonio Spurs when they lost Kawhi Leonard in the situation that they're in now. I mean, Greg Popovich and the Spurs gave it the gave it the best try that they could, but 
Leonard was like, no, nah, man, I'm going back home. I, I, no one ever knows the real story about that, but basically they had to trade Kawhi to the Toronto Raptors for DeMar DeRozan. But basically, if I'm the Utah Jazz, man, I uh, I take a look at that example and see where the San Antonio Spurs are right now. And I tell both of those guys, y'all ain't going nowhere. I don't care if you guys like each other. I don't care if you guys don't talk to each other. I don't care if you guys don't hang out with each other. I don't care what off the court. I don't care what your relationship is. As long as you don't, you don't try to sabotage this team, as long as you guys don't do anything stupid when you're in the locker room together, as long as you want to go ahead and fight and yell and scream or do whatever, you do it on you do it on your free time. Don't bring that shit. Don't bring that drama. Don't bring that nonsense into the locker room. Y'all ain't going nowhere. We can put one stall at one end of the locker room and we can put the other guy at the other end of the locker room and we'll do our best for you guys not to be interacting except when you guys cross between the lines to play basketball. When the ball is being tipped and the games are going on, you guys have to you guys have to be on the same page to win basketball games. You guys have to work together to try to win basketball games, period. But other than that, no, nah, man. After that, you guys can do whatever you want to. If you don't want to talk to each other, fine with me. But y'all ain't going nowhere. Find a way to work it out. Find a way to work it out. So that would be my situation because you take a look. If I am going to be trained, Devin Mitchell is one of the top, what, 20 players in the NBA right now as far as guys who are under 23. He's probably, what, in the top 7, 8, 10 at the very least. 23 points a game. A guy who likes, says that he likes the Utah community. A guy who might be a situation like Russell Westbrook and his desire to stay in Oklahoma City for as long as he did. A situation in Kevin Durant, uh, Kevin Garnett who wanted to stay in a market like Minnesota for as long as he did. We have one of these guys, it looks like, in Donovan Mitchell where he's not just counting his time and putting up numbers and building his stats and building his resume and building his reputation and building his value. So when he does become a free agent, the first thing he's going to do is look toward the New York Knicks or the Chicago Bulls or the Miami Heat or the Los Angeles Lakers or another big market team. He's not one of those guys. He's a guy that might actually do what John Stockton and Carl Malone did and actually say, hey, I want to build my career. I want to build my legacy. I want to build my my greatness right here in Utah. We're not going to be trading him. We're not going to be trading somebody like that. And, you know, there's reports about the New York Knicks being interested. What could the New York Knicks offer? If it doesn't involve Mitchell Robertson, Robinson, J.R. Barrett, and two future first-round picks, don't even pick up the phone. Don't even text me. Don't even think about it. Forget it. The Denver Nuggets, maybe they could offer Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. for Mitchell. I wouldn't do it. The Boston Celtics, I know they have a plethora of picks, and plus they'll have you know, such young cats as Jalen Brown and maybe throwing Marcus Smart in there. I mean, that's what it's going to take for Utah to maybe even think about getting rid of Donovan Mitchell. I don't do it. I don't do it. And trading Rudy Gobert, I mean, how valuable, even though he is a defensive guy, the best defensive center in the league that we got, a rim protector and a guy who can improving, solid, decent offensive skills. He's never going to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's never going to be a go-to guy. But he has been improving his offensive repertoire every single year to where he can become a solid 14 to 16 point a game score. What are you going to do with him? Especially the way the NBA is going toward a smaller version of basketball, not a larger version of basketball. So what are you, what are you going to do with him? What, maybe trade him to the Knicks? Maybe take him and trade him to the Dallas Mavericks? I don't know. I don't, I don't do any of that stuff. I don't trade either of them.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us finishing up what's going down on the podcast today. Man, you know what? I don't know. I'll probably save this for the dog days, I'll say, of sports time in the summer when there's really nothing that's going to be going on. There, I saw a picture of Bill Belichick, one of the things of him scowling or something like that. I think that he was at the combine and Andy Dalton is on Twitter and he's throwing catching passes with his kids and stuff. And in the comment section, which is really where the real entertainment value is, if you're ever on Twitter, they have Bill Belichick kind of scoping them out. They had the gif of Bill Belichick scoping out somebody. And I've always thought that, man, you know, I just wish him and Russell Westbrook are probably the two best sports figures in terms of if you were making a Bond movie or if you were doing some type of movie where, you know, you had the hero and you had the villain, man, I'm telling you, the game day persona and intensity and character of Bill Belichick and Russell Westbrook, they would make great villains in a James Bond movie. I'm telling you, man, like the ultimate Dr. No or the ultimate bad guy in a James Bond movie, Bill Belichick would be awesome. And if you're just talking about that badass, talking about villain, Russell Westbrook, the guy that plays basketball, Russell Westbrook, not the guy who's a father, not the guy who's a husband, not the guy who is a normal citizen, you know, everyday citizen. I'm talking about the basketball playing in an NBA game, Russell Westbrook. That persona, that intensity, that character right there, that guy would be awesome as a villain. If there was somehow, some way that you could get Russell Westbrook, whenever he finished playing, get him and just give him a script, have him go through a thing, let him learn the lines, and then just try to get him in that mode if he's playing in a game seven of an NBA championship against a hated, heated rival. Let's just pretend that, you know what, Russell, coming into this script, coming into this movie, the hero of this movie, I want you to have the same type of disgust and anger and hatred and motivation to kill, maim, and destroy as, say, you have with Patrick Beverly. You know what? I want you to go as far as this character is concerned. Pretend that the hero of the movie, your nemesis, is Patrick Beverly. And take your same lines and your same acting ability and everything and just gear it toward that. You would have an Oscar-winning performance from Russell Westbrook. The same thing with Bill Belichick. Bill, I want you to imagine when you do your lines, when you do your scenes with this guy, with the hero of the program, with the hero of the movie, just pretend that he's Welch Welker. Or just pretend that he's Roger Goodell. Or just pretend he's Eric Mangini. Just pretend he's one of those guys. You know, take that same type of intensity that you have toward them and bring it toward your character, toward this movie and the nemesis and the person that you're going to be playing up against. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. That would be an awesome movie. James Bond. We're talking about new new villains. That would be great. If the if the if the movie industry ever comes back to where it was. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey man, 249. UFC 249 is called off last Thursday. UFC president Dana White told Brett Akimoto that the card is off and all UFC events are postponed indefinitely. The main event was to, was to feature Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje for the interim lightweight championship. He was Gaethje was replacing Khabib Nurmagomedov, so it was supposed to take place. The fight between Ferguson and Gaethje was supposed to take place at the Tachi Palace Casino Resort in Lemoore, California. 
The venue was on Native American sovereign land and therefore didn't have to abide by state regulations. Interesting. Interesting. But Thursday, the UFC canceled the event. White said due to intervention from the highest level you can go at Disney and the highest levels at ESPN. And ESPN in the statement said that ESPN has been in constant contact with the UFC regarding UFC 249. Nobody wants to see sports return more than we do. But we didn't feel this was the right time for a variety of reasons. ESPN expressed its concerns to the UFC and they understood. Man, I'm telling you, man, I don't know. I mean, you know, you have the situation now where in Florida, the w, uh, the WWE is allowed to go ahead and do its wrestling shows because the governor or somebody there deemed that essential, essential business. I don't know how putting on a wrestling, wrestling show can be considered essential business, but all right, whatever. I just think I just think the whole thing from the get-go was just kind of ridiculous when you really think about it. Just hold two to 49. First of all, if you weren't going to have Khabib and Tony Ferguson, don't even have the card. Or, you know, just kind of save that for later. So it would just seem like everything was being rushed. We didn't have the correct promotion. It just, just didn't seem right. You know, it just seemed like Dana White was just doing this because Dana White said he was going to go ahead and do this. And it was a challenge to Dana White to put this thing together more than it was to go ahead and have the best show possible. And this nonsense about, you know, acquiring uh, Island or some nonsense like that, he wouldn't give us the exact location or he would never really give us any for, firm understanding in terms of when this was going to happen, where it was going to happen. Well, he, he did keep saying that this was going to happen April 18th, April 18th. But other than that, it just didn't seem right. It just didn't feel right. So moving forward, I'm glad that for now the UFC is going to be postponing all of its events. Where this leaves Tony Ferguson, where this leaves Justin Gaethje, where does this leave Thug Rose, where does this leave Khabib, where does this leave Conor McGregor? Because as we know, anything as you're talking about from welterweight on the way all the way down to lightweight in the UFC is going to be revolving around Conor McGregor, the biggest sports combat star in the world, and possibly just in fighting and combat sports in general, Conor McGregor is right up there with Canelo Alvarez and surpasses Canelo Alvarez in terms of the popularity, in terms of the name recognition uh, for fighting and boxing and all of those things put together. So, of course, you know, this is a situation where if everything was going to be going off as planned, that Conor was probably going to fight the winner of Khabib and Tony Ferguson and whether that leaves Justin Gacy. And now there's also talk also that Conor also wants to get back into the boxing ring and maybe go ahead and fight some folks because he knows, at least in boxing, he has a short window of opportunity to make some real money in terms of fighting before people find out that he's not a quality fighter in terms of being a top-tier boxing performer or you know, as far as being a boxer, that McGregor is not what we would call someone who's a pay-per-view worthy so, you know, he can get a couple of fights before that shine wears off. He's not as good at I mean, you know, he goes up there and fights Canelo Alvarez or goes ahead and fights someone like a Tony Ferguson or, excuse me, uh, fight someone like a Errol Spence or a, or a Crawford, Terrence Crawford. I mean, he would get absolutely destroyed. So, you know, we'll see how that works. But just in terms of going forward, because we, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening with the coronavirus, man, we don't know when the UFC is going to be back into play. We, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening. Henry Cejudo was talking about, you know, he wants 250 to go off. I mean, that fight's supposed to be in Brazil. You really think by May that Brazil's going to be ready to be holding UFC events? events? Hell fucking no. So, 
it'll be interesting. And one more thing before I get out of here, and this is more on the coronavirus, and this kind of brought to me about, you know, the UFC being uh, postponed because of the virus, because of concerns of the virus, and why people should be listening without question to what the experts are saying in terms of social distancing, in terms of we don't want to rush back to trying to have a normal way of life. Remember that diatribe that Dana White was talking about a few podcasts ago when I was talking about um, Dana White coming on about his reasons for trying to continue with the UFC 249 event. And he's like, you know what, if I get coronavirus and die, fuck it, I die and all this type of nonsense. Basically that he was saying like, you know, we need to hurry up and we need to get back to normal because, you know, this is ridiculous. And so I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to be the leading. I'm going to be the Pied Piper and lead the way in terms of putting on sporting events so people can get back to normal. Remember when that interview with Yahoo's Dan Wexel that, that uh, Dana White was talking that bullshit, and finally someone from Disney finally came down and said, nah, man, you're done, you're done. Well, when I read this, it kind of made me think about the UFC and 249 and, and, and basically anybody else who's talking about, you know, we need to go ahead and we need to see what we can do to get back things to normal and have sporting events and these college football coaches or some of these college football coaches or a couple of these college football coaches who are up here talking about, you know, we need to get things back to normal and 18 to 22 year old kids, they, they'll be able to resist it and don't worry about it. And it's just the whole thing, you know, as far as this whole COVID-19, this pandemic that we're dealing with, trying to get back to normal, wanting to get back to normal, all the ideas that football and baseball and basketball and the UFC and everybody else, what they've been trying to do to see what we can do to get things back to normal and start playing games and maybe not even getting things back to normal, but resuming the season or starting the season and hoping for the season and alternate plans for the season and alternating things for the season, all of this type of stuff surrounding COVID-19. When anybody starts coming up with these real ideas or starts coming up with ideas of how leagues can start or fights can start or trying to get back to normal. I want someone to go ahead and go to this article that I saw in the New York Times. An evangelical pastor died of COVID-19 weeks after proudly showing off how packed his Virginia church was and vowing to keep preaching until I'm in jail or in the hospital. He also should have added, or until I'm dead. Because this jackass, that's exactly what happened to him. In his last known in-person service on March 27th, excuse me, March 22nd, Bishop Gerald O'Glenn got his congregation at Richmond's New Deliverance Evangelicalistic Church to stand to prove how many were there despite warnings against gathering of more than 10 people. And he said, I firmly believe that God is larger than this dreaded virus. You can quote me on that. What an idiot. What a jackass. So on Sunday, this past Sunday, his church announced with an exceedingly sorrowful and heavy heart that the pastor had died, has died, or the past, that the pastor had died a week after being diagnosed with COVID-19. His wife is also sick with the bug with church members, church members offering their prayers. And the guy sitting up there who delivered the announcement was sitting up there talking about, I, I don't understand this. I don't understand how this happened. What the fuck do you mean you don't understand what happened? 
Are you dumb? Are you stupid? Are you ignorant? Are you all on the three? What are you talking about? You don't understand what happened. Let me explain to you what happened. We have a pandemic going around. We have a virus without a vaccine going around. We have a pandemic, a virus going around that's killing people who are susceptible to this virus going around. We have a virus that's going around that affects those with compromised immune system, those that without compromised immune system, those who are elderly, those who have had medical uh, problems in the past. Yeah, we have that going around now, going around right now that is killing hundreds of millions of people. It's a worldwide epidemic, or excuse me, a worldwide pandemic. That's what we have going around. I mean, man, you talk to God, you pray. I mean, don't you... I mean, didn't he say something like this? I mean, in all your prayers, when you're talking to the Almighty One, when you're talking to our Lord and Savior, he didn't say, oh, hey, man, by the way, um, I forgot to tell you. My bad. I forgot to tell you. There's this virus going around that started over in Wuhan, China. There's this virus going around that's, that's killing people. I should have told you that before you had your pastor go ahead and bring everybody into the congregation, go bring everybody into the church, pass that plate around, because we know how these reverends are, right? I mean, we know how these preachers are, right? Got to pass that plate around. Hey, man, praying ain't, praying ain't for free. So I'm quite sure, you know, I forgot to tell you that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, how stupid can you get? Because we see these, we see this past Easter Sunday, right? These folks talking about they're going to be going to church. The blood of the Lord is going to be able to comfort me and to protect me and all this kind of stuff. Man, let me explain to you fucking moron something. I mean, evangelicals, I'm sorry to say this, man. I might get in trouble, but I don't care. Evangelicals, some of y'all are just some of the stupid motherfuckers going. First of all, you dumb motherfuckers are the ones that are stupid enough to put someone who is totally amoral. You voted for a motherfucker that is totally amoral and totally against everything that you supposedly pray for, that you supposedly are against. You put that motherfucker into the White House. So... From that point of view, y'all can go fuck yourselves with anything you guys have to say concerning religious values and morals and all that kind of stuff, because y'all are the ones who are mainly responsible for putting the amoral, conning, cunning piece of shit that we have in the White House right now. So y'all can go ahead and find that cliff, jump. So for some of you motherfuckers who sit up there and spouse and preach and talk about, you know, sinning and all this kind of stuff, and y'all can just, I mean, y'all don't talk to me. But... For you preachers out there who are sitting up there, these evangelical preachers and these other preachers, for whatever religion that y'all are preaching, to sit up there and to put your parishioners at, at, at risk by doing this kind of stupidity. I mean, if y'all wanted to be dumb, if you want to put your head in the sand, or if you want to deny the truth, if you want to really deny what's happening, there are news outlets, there are podcasts, there is a president of the United States that you can listen to that can fool you guys into ending your lives or being sick. I mean, if you want to listen to a news station, if you want to listen to some uh, far-right radio or some podcast, if you want to listen to some fucking clown briefings every day, then you can maybe sit there and convince yourself that, yeah, maybe going into a church with a whole bunch of people is no big deal. Depending upon what part of the country that you live in, you can be stupid enough and be surrounded by other people who are stupid enough to go into a church during this period of time 
and to put your health at risk and put other people's health at risk by trying to praise the Lord. And because y'all say y'all, because you guys are confessing your sins, I confess that I have sinned against thee in thought, word, and deed by what I have done, by what I have left undone. I have not loved thee with thy whole heart. I have not loved thy neighbor as thyself. I am truly sorry and I humbly repent for the sake of thy son, Jesus Christ, that we may, that we may delight in thy will and walk in thy ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You can say that from morning, noon, and night. You can say that every single moment, every single second that you are in that church surrounded by those folks. If you have a compromising immune system, if you are of an elderly age, you are putting yourself at a high risk of becoming sick and dying. And it's, again, it doesn't matter how many times you say the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't matter how many times you confess your sins. It doesn't, how much, it doesn't matter how much money you put in that communion plate or in that plate being passed around to make sure that that pastor or that preacher or whatever is wearing the fanciest clothes, driving around the nicest cars, or living in the biggest house. It doesn't matter how much you contribute to that. If you go into a church... A large gathering during this period of time, you are putting yourself at a high risk to die at the very worst and to become very sick at the very least. So I just saw that and I said, these fools are absolutely unbelievable. These fools, and again, I'm quite sure that you can listen to Certain news outlets, I'm quite sure that you can listen to other folks sit there and talk about no big deal. This is a hoax. This is a joke. It's not really affecting that many people. You can, do, you can come up with all that kind of stuff. stuff. This is one political party's way of trying to get the idiot that we have in, in, the, in the White House right now out. You can go ahead and you can fool yourself and you can stupid yourself to believe it all in that nonsense. All I ask is, you know what you all need to do? Go ahead, find about 50 to 100% of your buddies, of your friends who believe the same things, the same way that you do. It ain't no big deal. It's no joke. It's, it's a joke. It's a hoax. Big deal. Y'all need to get together. Quarantine yourselves all in one place. Just quarantine yourself all in one place and see how many come out alive or see how many come out that aren't sick. That's what y'all need to do. It can be almost addition by subtraction. Because we got enough stupid people walking around this earth. I mean, you know, right now we just get, ugh. I mean, this guy is a, is a fool. I, I, don't know, I don't know what happened. Man, come on, y'all. Come on, Rev. Come on, preach. Preach, you know, preach the real. The Lord is sending you, the Lord is sending you signals. Stay in the house. Self-quarantine. Be responsible. Be smart. Use common sense. Be careful. That's all we need to do. And then hopefully, maybe, praying that sooner rather than later we can go back to having large congregations of people praising the Lord or praising Allah or praising Jehovah or praising whoever you need to praise or whatever, man. But man, let's just be smart. Let's just be smart. I mean, this guy was a father. This guy was a husband. And now this dumbass, because he's talking about the Lord is going to be able to take care of us and he's stronger than this virus. That man is now dead. And his wife is a widow. And his child is fatherless. Because this dumbass didn't listen. Because he thought the Lord was going to take care of him. And you can tell that he's a phony and a fraud because if he was truly down with the Lord and truly up with the Lord and truly, you know, a step in step with the Lord, then he would have known 
Somehow the Lord would have said, man, what is your dumb ass doing? Your congregation needs you. Your, your, your parishioners need you. Your city, Richmond, Virginia, that community needs you. The people who go to that church, they need you. What the hell is your dumb ass doing going to church, putting yourself and others in harm's way like this? Yes, yeah, right. I'm saying that sometimes the Lord has to curse sometimes to get a point across. So if this fool was actually praying every night, either he was praying to the wrong Lord, either he was bullshitting, or either he wasn't listening to what the Lord was putting down. But I'm quite sure right now he's up there in judgment day. And I'm quite sure somebody, one of, one of his, one of the Lord's angels is sitting up there saying, man, what the fuck were you doing? <laughs> what the hell were you doing? Do you know how many people you put in? Well, the Lord told me bullshit. The Lord didn't tell you. The Lord didn't tell you to go ahead and, and, and have Sunday service. You know how susceptible you were to that disease or you should have been or that virus. You should have been. Man, unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right. That's it. I want to thank you very much for listening. As I mentioned before, just in case if you didn't catch what I was talking about at the beginning, I apologize for some of the comparisons that I made on a podcast before. Won't happen again. But you know, man, when you live your life, I always say this. Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle said this when he was being interviewed on the Actors Studio Guild. Um, and I kind of take this to heart because, you know, I'm a guy who, when I'm on doing my podcast, I'm a performer, you know. I'm somewhat of a performer. I mean, what you see, what you hear when I do these things is who I am. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not just doing this. This is not a character or anything like that. I mean, if you come up to me on the street and you start talking to me about these things, you're going to get the same type of energy. You're going to get the same type of passion. You're going to get the same thing in terms of this is not an act. I mean, when I'm talking to my friends, when I'm talking to the students, except for the cursing, of course, with the students, but when I'm talking to people about things that I care about, that I'm passionate about, that I firmly believe in, when I want to voice my thoughts and opinions and express my thoughts and opinions, this is this is who I am. This is what I'm talking about right here. What you hear on this podcast is me every day talking to my friends, to my family, to anybody where we bring up issues that I care about. So for me... When I discuss these things, I take it to the line. I take it to the edge. Sometimes I fall over the edge, you know? I guess I didn't know the ledge like I'm Rakim. But I try to do my best to stay on the right side of the ledge. But if you come up to the ledge as much as I do, sometimes you fall over. And when you do that, you pick yourself up, you apologize, you learn from it, you make sure you don't make that same mistake again, and you move forward and you use that negative as a positive to move better as a person, as a human being, as a creature of God, which exactly is what I am. So, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Be safe, be kind, be cool, use common sense, be strong, and we'll get through this, man. Individually and together, we'll get through this. Music. Music.